Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten Podcast. Joining me on this show is your boy John Vallis, Ray Youssef and Jace who are all here to talk about the secrets of the Federal Reserve. How did this come about? Well, Ray introduced me to this book when I was listening to a podcast he had been on, which was the Bitcoin Standard one with Safer Dean. And he mentioned this book two or three times and I had to dig into it because I was shocked I hadn't heard about it. And I was shocked when I read it that nobody else seemed to have heard about it. I've been beating the drum about this book that plebs need to read this book as much as they need to read The Creature from Jekyll Island. So I got in touch with John, we conspired, we both read the book, and then we recorded this podcast. John's already released it on his show as one of his book club reviews, and I'm releasing it on this show about three or four months later, just so we can get the information out to as many people as possible. Thank you guys for joining. I really appreciate you coming on. And I hope this inspires you all to go and dig a little bit deeper into what what happened on Jekyll Island. Who were the people involved? Why are we here where we are at today? And why Bitcoin is so damn important. I hope you enjoy the episode. Before we get into the show, please show some support for the show sponsors. Swan Bitcoin are based out of the US. You can download that app and start stacking sats instantly. Set up your auto buys. And they have a white glove service to help you if you need that extra touch and what to do with your retirement fund or if you need to put on bigger size in Bitcoin position. Relay, R-E-L-A-I dot C-H. They're based out of Europe. They offer all the same services as Swan do. You can download that app and start smash buying up to a thousand euros, excuse me, Swiss equivalent per day just with your favorite form of payment, whether that's Apple Pay, Google Pay or one of your bank cards it doesn't matter you can start smash buying that's relay.ch forward slash bitten coin corner are an exchange based in the isle of man out of the uk they can serve euro plebs as well as you brit coiners and you can set up an account with them it's very easy to do you can also set up a merchant account or use their merchant account offering to orange peel your favorite businesses in your local area hodl hodl are a global peer-to-peer trading platform no kyc needed Simply make an account and start trading globally, peer-to-peer, with Bitcoiners around the world. If you hit the link in the show notes, you're going to save on commission. How do you up your privacy? Please take all of those coins, those Satoshis, off the exchanges and make sure you're going to cold storage. On your way off of the exchange, you could run them through a coin joint service. WasabiWallet.io is one of the easiest places to go for that. You simply download the software on your desktop. You create a wallet just like you create any other wallet. You take note of your words. You keep everything safe. You withdraw the sats into there. The coin join happens automatically in front of your eyes. And then your last stop is to get into cold storage. The Bitbox 02 bought by Swiss, uh, bitbox.swiss forward slash bitten. And you use the code bitten will get you 5% discount. It's a signing device that's going to keep your sats as safe as possible. How do you up your education? 
mempool.space is a great place to go and do that. It's an incredible way to visualize the Bitcoin blockchain and to orange pill your friends. Track your transactions, start up in your game with your knowledge, what's going on in each block and start digging in a little bit deeper as you fall down the rabbit hole. That's mempool.space. Consensus Network have got you for your books. They're translating as many Bitcoin or Bitcoin related books as they can into as many different languages as possible. So head over to Consensus Network, use that code BITTEN, save 10%, pay via the Lightning Network and save a further 10%. Then of course, conferences, get to one. You've got the Riga conference coming up that's put on by HODL HODL, the Baltic Honey Badger. You can use the code BITTEN at checkout to get yourself a 10% discount. And Liberty in Our Lifetime is in October. That's put on by the Free Cities Foundations. That is about building parallel structures. So how can you plug in as a Bitcoiner to parallel structures that are being built around the world? Whether that is a whole different way of community living, such as Prospera in Honduras, then maybe that's something for you. Maybe it isn't. There are other things going on out there. So get over to Liberty in Our Lifetime and check out the podcast by Free Cities Foundation hosted by Timothy Allen. Finally, join Orange Pill app. If you're not on the app, you're missing out. It's pure signal. People are forming so many great relationships on there, whether that is for building out um, events or workshops or communities, or even, yes, even finding a loved one. It might be a dating app after all. Enjoy this rip with the guys as we delve into the secrets of the Federal Reserve. All right, gents. Um, first of all, thank you for joining in this discussion. Um, I will save my intro um, and let everyone just, I'll pass it around. Everyone can introduce themselves and discuss a little bit about, you know, their motivations or interest in covering this book and this topic. And then I'll, uh, I'll take up, I'll finish and then we'll, we'll get started on whatever path opens up most naturally. So Princey, why don't I throw it over to you first? Yeah, awesome. And thanks uh, thanks for hosting, mate. Um, I know we'll both release this on, on our pods uh, and hopefully get this message out to as many people as possible. But the, the reason I fell down this rabbit hole and this book in particular is because of Ray. And thank you, Ray, for joining the call today. I was part of the, I've been part of the saferdean.com group since inception. And as a member, you get to sit in on his podcast interviews. And one week, Ray shows up and, you know, they, they start having a great conversation. I'm sure Ray remembers it very well. And he kept mentioning this book, uh, The Secrets of the Federal Reserve by, by Eustace Mullins. Uh, and I'd never heard of it. And I couldn't believe I'd never heard of it because like you, John, I've been down the rabbit hole for a long time and I've done the Jekyll Island and tried to... Uh, dig into all of the other books out there. Tower of Basel is another one that you could get into. Um, and this one just blew my mind. And you know, people struggle with Jekyll because it's so big. Whereas this thing, it's, look at the size of it. It's so approachable. And it's so full of just incredible information. And what really interested me was uh, that the author wrote this uh, a lot closer to the founding of the, the Federal Reserve or the Federal Reserve Act in the in the 40s and he he was doing it um well i'll read you the foreword because it is from is from his own his own mouth uh in 1949 
while I was visiting Ezra Pound, who was a political prisoner at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, Washington, D.C., a federal institution for the insane, Dr. Pound asked me if I had ever heard of the Federal Reserve System. I replied that I had not, as of the age of 25. He then showed me a $10 bill marked Federal Reserve Note and asked me if I would do some research at the Library of Congress on the Federal Reserve System, which had issued this bill. Pound was unable to go to the library himself as he was being held without trial as a political prisoner by the United States government. After he was denied broadcasting time in the US, Dr. Pound broadcast from Italy in an effort to persuade people of the United States not to enter World War II. Franklin D. Roosevelt had personally ordered Pound's indictment, spurred by the demands of his three personal assistants, Roosevelt's personal assistants, Harry Dexter White, Lachlan Curry, and Alga Hiss, all of whom were subsequently identified as being connected with communist espionage. Now, Mullins goes on to say, I had no interest in money or banking as a subject because I was working on a novel. Pound offered to supplement my income by $10 a week for a few weeks. My initial research revealed evidence of an international banking group which had secretly planned the writing of the Federal Reserve Act and Congress enactment of the plan into law. These findings confirmed that what Pound had long uh, suspected. He said, you must work on it as a detective story. And then, bam, like for me, at least, uh, the doors get blown off. uh, And we'll get into all of this good, juicy stuff as we go forward. But I thought it was uh, an interesting note to say here that Mullins never set out to write this book. And this was a research project that he was put onto by somebody he respected and a mentor. So over to you, John. And um, thanks again for hosting us. Yeah, well, I'll, uh, I'll throw it over to Jace for an intro and initial thoughts on the book. Hey, guys. Um, so I think um, it's been a long time since I've read the book. I reached out to John um, and um, had really um, been down the, the rabbit hole. Um, again, the, the introduction for me is, um, I would say, new Bitcoiner, um, class of 2020, I want to say. Um, and as John and I have talked about, uh, Bitcoin's changed my life in so many different ways. And as we can talk about through the book here, um, it's, it's created this opportunity for me, um, to, to go back and really establish what I think is, um, most important, um, right now is, um, establishing, um, working on Bitcoin and working in the actual production, um, side of things. Um, my family owns a uh, dairy processing plant, and um, I've, I've pretty much moved my entire life back to the, the foundation of kind of how I grew up, kind of strayed, and really Bitcoin has brought me back. Um, I believe in this cause so much. Um, I've really changed my entire life and my the entire trajectory of where I'm headed to come back and establish um, things that are tied back to nature and natural law. And, and it kind of goes into the themes of this book a lot, but the further away that you get from, from nature 
in the constraints of nature, I think that's really where things go awry. Um, I think that this book is a, a perfect indication of when you're stacking system, systems upon systems upon systems, how much that just completely falls apart at the seams. Um, and so a little bit, again, the, the introduction for me is just uh, a simpleton, uh, a country boy that really um, has taken a profound um, look at my own personal life. Um, and then again, books like this, um, Creature from Jekyll Island exposes the complexities that we've all been enslaved to in some capacity um, and trying to cut through the noise and understand the, the implications of just the this total system that you're in that you're born into that you never chose to but we have to operate in and i think um having giving clarity to the insights of of the the incentives that are that are put before before us that i think through this book it highlights um is distilling it down making it simple making it easy for people to understand and and tangibly grasp um and actually uh, make the changes in life to do something about it. So I think for me, it's 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 simplicity, uh, boiling it down, and then putting things to action uh, first and foremost. So thanks well for said. thanks for yeah thanks for having me on. I again I I appreciate it. Absolutely, big man. Yeah, thank you for that, gentlemen. That was great. Thank you all so much for inviting me. Um, there was a time in my life where a meeting like this would have almost been the greatest thing that could have ever happened. Even now, it's pretty awesome. But I just want to, before we start talking about the content of the book, with three people smarter than me, which is always a pleasure, I want to frame this in terms of the human experience. At the time when I discovered this book, I was going through my own awakening. I had just come back from uh, Tahrir Square in Egypt. And uh, what I saw happening there on the ground was the diametric opposite of the narrative we were being fed when I came back to America. And it got me going down a rabbit hole. The only rabbit hole I'd gone down before was science, I'm sorry, the health medicine rabbit hole. that was five. Then finally, you know, the calcified American that I was, I was forced to go down another book, rather, just a political historical, and really about money. You know, I started researching you know, money. I read Creature from Jekyll Island. I read a few other books on this system. But then I started making friends. And the friends that I started making were these uh, really patriotic Americans that have quite a colorful history. A lot of, one of them was an ex green Beret. One of them was ex-NSA. One of them was the former um, secretary of the treasury under Reagan. You know? And all these brilliant American giants, right? These are guys that they're like on safety deep type territory. Hardly anyone knows their names, but these are the guys that have been fighting to save America for a very long time. And they started introducing me to tomes of knowledge I otherwise would never have discovered. I can mention this book to you guys. It's a risky one, but I did mention it. There's some of these books that they recommended to me that I couldn't mention. So that was my journey to getting this. And let's talk about Eustace Mullins, the writer of this book. Let's look at his life, right? At the time, this guy was a 20-year-old young man, a boy, really. He wanted to become a fictional writer. 
Right? He was looking to find someone to help him become a great fictional writer. And he was just a country bumpkin. He's from Mississippi originally. And he was looking for someone to help him. He's looking for his Yoda. And he does his research and everyone's like, hey, bro, you got to check out this guy, Pound. He's actually the ghostwriter for Hemingway, for Virginia Woolf, for Nabokov, Lilo, and a couple of other guys. This guy was a giant. And all the insiders knew his name. So he used to say, you know what? I'm going to find this Pound character. I'm going to make him my mentor. He's going to help me become a great fictional writer. Drags him down to a mental institution. Goes to see him. And just like Yoda, he finds his Yoda. And Yoda's like, you know what? Okay, we can work together. I'll help you become a great fictional writer. The first, he's your first mission. The quest is, research this federal resources. Go into the Congressional Library of Congress and find whatever you can. If you do a good job, I promise you, I'll help you become a great fictional writer. Yusuf accepted the challenge gladly. And he most certainly did find a lot more than he bargained for. This man spent years in the National Library of Congress. And what he discovered was far more insane and unbelievable than any kind of fiction. So that's Yusuf's story. And we're all kind of like him right now because we're all starting to discover that everything that we've known is a lie. And the conspiracy he unraveled was beyond the realm of the, or even the most jaded of schemers. I'll leave it at that. Before I let you leave it at that, Ray, what would make a book unmentionable in the current company? I'm not even telling you to mention it necessarily, but what would make a book unmentionable? Well, for example, there's one book that was banned in America for 20 years because it actually names the real culprits of possibly the biggest conspiracy in America before 9-11. And that was the assassination of JFK. And if you start mentioning going down that rabbit hole, well, that opens me up to all kinds of risk. And again, I'm just being totally transparent on this for you guys. Because we I don't want anyone sticking their neck out. But when you do dive into depths of the rabbit hole, you start to get into places where even the mere mention things get you immediately canceled. I'm just being completely important. Sure. You know, I, Jace, I think you mentioned a, a, an important point, which is one of the reasons why these sorts of discussions and these sorts of, sorts of investigations are important is because you are just born out into the world, whether it's Egypt, whether it's the U.S., Canada, Europe, Nigeria, wherever, and you just take everything you see at face value because you don't know anything about the world. You don't know anything about the history of the world. You don't know how anything is supposed to, quote unquote, work. And so you just kind of, okay, this, this is the territory. This is the game I'm playing. And it's only once you mature and if you have a sufficiently curious mind where you say there's an element of you know, ethics or morality that comes into it, or even a, a more sophisticated appreciation for how things do and can work, where you say, should things be working this way? I mean, is it right that they work this way? Or even from a strictly technical point of view, could they be working better? What would the parameters or the constituents of a different system that would that would output a better result? What would that look like? And this is kind of, you know, the, the metaphorical... Uh, beginning to question the shadows on the walls of the cave, right? This is where you just, you, you say, hold up, 
what's that on the wall? And like, who are those people behind me? And where's that fire coming from? And what's, what's that bright light up there? And it's a process, you know, it's, it's the search for truth, which I would say, broadly speaking, is what motivates all of us probably more than anything. And it was definitely that, uh, I'll, I'll share, hopefully not, uh, hopefully a brief uh, version of my story here, but I, uh, you know, on that quest for a long time and you you wind up here you know because you realize the importance of of money and it's not something that's talked about and you know i always thought it was weird that we'd have these just pieces of paper with if it, if there's a five printed on it you can get you know a, a, like a candy bar and a soda pop and a few other things if there's a hundred printed on it well you might be able to get a piece of jewelry and some other stuff and it's like not it's the same piece of paper it's just got different ink you know just got a different number on it so What's going on there? And, you know, I'm sure there's, it's impossible to pinpoint a specific cause for, you know, a, a line of inquiry, let's say, because they're all so connected. But one for me was definitely, you know, I, I, I had woken up to the, let's call it lie that marijuana was like, you know, a killer drug, right? The reefer madness sort of attitude. Um, and, and even if most people didn't hold that, because by the time I was, Sorry, did John just? Yeah, I was. I was. I think. I think. I think he's trying to cut out. Yeah. I don't know. They've shut us down, Ray. <laughs> They've shut us that fast. I mean, come oh. on. Ten minutes in. <laughs> we already getting warmed up yet. Come on. Right. There was. Uh, I remember on the the safe pod, you were talking about a time that you did. You not like sit outside on a park bench directly outside the the federal bank. Uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and, and just like uh, contemplate life? Uh, well, the story I believe I mentioned wasn't in front of the Federal Reserve. I had, there's a park across the street where I did set out there once and get our, you know, a hot dog once. But the real place, that story was about me sitting outside a bench uh, in front of the Council of Foreign Affairs in the Upper East Side. And at the time, I know I was researching about that place. It's a nice old building, but that's basically the place where they planned World War One, World War Two. It's basically probably the number one den of the master schemers of this technocratic era, as the Council of Foreign Affairs on 89th and Blackside. And I remember sitting out there watching that place. I just found this crummy ass Domino's pizza crust uncooked and I was eating that stuff and tasting like paste. And I was just sitting there contemplating my life. I was homeless at the time. And I filled my head up with all of this knowledge. And I was literally just sitting there and realizing, you know what? I'm a total alien. I literally, like the stuff that's in my head, I can't share with anyone. I'm homeless. And I'm sitting here looking at this building. And inside there, I know what's happening. What can I do? What power do I have to change this world with the knowledge that I have? Or am I just going to be some, you know, insane dude sitting on a park bench with all these wild conspiracy theories and no one can talk to? You can imagine you know, a young man sitting there feeling like these are all my friends were living these other lifestyles, and I was happy for them. But I knew I was very different to get this knowledge choose to embrace this knowledge at that point you are an activated warrior what is a warrior to do with all this knowledge how do i start so i remember that time very clearly yeah we've all been through that exact moment i think 
where all of the uh, the epiphanies drop and you, you sit there and you're thinking, how can I share this knowledge in the best possible way that I can? Exactly. Chase? Exactly. Yeah, well, yeah, I was even saying that and, and, and the, the complexities of, like I kind of mentioned, this a system stacked upon a system stacked upon a system. And I, you know, I know it's kind of almost a, a trope at this point, but the, the analogy of, of, again, the Tower of Babel of the further away you get from, from gravity and, and that capacity is the more unstable and, and downright evil things can become. And I, I think, you know, waking up and living in the modern world, you just accept you just you you receive the things that have been given to you but i but i think the theme for for most people um especially in bitcoin and, and people that have this thirst for for freedom of, and truth is is that the the almost the solution is simpler than you could ever possibly imagine um and you know ray to your point it's 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 the fact of how, what, what can you do in the light of um, you know, such complexity and, and, and downright evil. The quote I always go back to is um, a Lord of the Rings quote and Gandalf and Frodo are sitting in the mines of Moria and he goes, I wish this had never come to me. I, would, I wish this evil had never you know, almost been discovered. And, and Gandalf always says, and says to Frodo, he's like, you know, so does, so does everyone who sees times such as these. Um, but it's it's not for you to choose um, the time that you have, but it's for you to choose what you can do the time been been given. And I think conversations like this, the availability of of community of 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 sharing and knowledge and and zeal and passion to help keep things managed and moving forward, I think is that the eternal struggle between good and evil in so many different capacities. And I think this is, this is one of the, the most beautiful things to do is it's the double-edged swords of information. You have all of the complexity, but you have the, the ability to act on simplicity, which is doing the right thing day after day after day. And um, that, that can be a reassuring in, in a lot of those um, points, but um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's you know, I, I like to weigh in with the human aspect of all of this just to make those that are listening to those people that just might be beginning their journey down the rabbit hole, just to give them some peace. Because, you know, the hardest part about this journey is when you first start waking up. And depending on your personality, you might be some crazy motherfucker that just, okay, I went down one rabbit hole but you just keep voraciously going, voraciously chasing every other rabbit hole down, and you keep dropping and dropping and losing more friends, going crazier and crazier. If you have a type T personality and you just keep going until you find yourself at the very fucking bottom, you're like, what the fuck? Where am I? Who the who can I talk to? Like, I, I just went all out, man. And you're just sitting there again, homeless with that, you know, pasty domino's pizza crust that's cold that you just got from a bakery on sutton street and you walk all the way up to the fucking council of foreign relations everyone's walking around me just getting out of the club all tipsy one i'm just staring at this place 
and wondering, how did I get to this place in life? At this time, I had gone down the political rabbit hole to the mass. I had devoured maybe 50 books on religious history, and I hadn't stopped there. I had finally fallen down the science rabbit hole, which is even deeper. And I was completely in another universe, and I was saying, God, please give me some comfort. Give me some people I can talk to about this. That didn't happen for, you know, <laughs> until now. <laughs> but I said, above all, give me something that I can do with this knowledge that's going to help. And it was, you know, two years after that that I discovered Bitcoin. So it took some time. But I finally discovered this thing and this community, which introduced me to like-minded people. But it's about patience. You know, we have to do the research, give up a lot of things, but ask God to, to be guided so that we'll have some ease and we'll have a, a way we can contribute. And I finally got that. It took some patience. But to anyone listening right now, it's okay, guys. You are, you know, you have, it's not the, so much that you're chosen. You have chosen to accept the truth and to process it. And you might have even chosen to chase every damn rabbit hole you can find. Great, maximum respect, we're still human beings. We still need that structure, we still need that support. And it's there, more people are waking up every single day. And they're not just, you know, weird, you know, uh, eccentric characters or homeless people or quacks. No, these are very intelligent, mindful people of resources, highly educated. And every day, more and more of them wake up in higher and higher places of power. And look, we have the Bitcoin Maxi community. Whatever you're going to say about these characters, they are our infantry. And they have stood the line with more resolve than any other community possibly ever in the history of humanity. Their resolve borders on religious zealotry. Exactly the kind of energy. It's a spiritual battle first and above all. And that's what I finally came to. All the logic, all the reason, all the education, all the diagrams you're going to draw led me to one resolution, that what's facing humanity right now is actually demonic in nature. It's the only logical explanation. Thus, our spirits must be strong. We're talking in a very special time right now. It's the holy month of Ramadan. When the last testament was revealed to the last prophet through the Holy Spirit, which is the Archangel Gabriel, by the way, if you ever want to cross-reference the New Testament, the last testament. But I, I just call, I urge everyone to actually enjoy this journey. It's scary when you're alone, but we're not alone anymore. So let's just dive in. Come on with the pearls and have a great ride, man. Let's talk about this book, y'all. I want to I touch on something you just said, right? And guys, sorry, I had a power glitch, so I dropped out for a few minutes. Princey, it's good that you're, you're recording this too, so we, I don't think we had any interruption. Um, but what, what I, and Ray just mentioned a point that I kind of came to myself, and the, the short story is that, you know, I had uh, come across uh, weed when I was like 13 or 14. And as a curious person, you know, I was like, oh, what is this stuff? And and you're told basically dangerous drug, dan you know, ruin your life, all this kind of stuff. And then my experience was such a departure from that. I was like, oh, wow, you know, I'm more creative, food tastes better, I'm laughing a lot, you know, that doesn't seem like what I've been told. And so that alone, you know, this is why the truth always will emerge, because a lie just can't stand up to the felt experience of truth, you know, and so they can persist for some time. But I think 
if you have that curious inquisitive mind, it, it's inevitable that truth will emerge. But what that put me down a path on was, you know, just following people that also were, you know, were anti-drug war, let's say, or what was happening with marijuana. One of them was was a, a seed grower in Canada, the so-called Prince of Pot. And he and the U.S. authorities wanted to extradite him for selling cannabis seeds to the, to the U.S. R ridiculous thing. He actually was extradited. And I think he spent 10 years in prison or whatever. But he, on one of his interviews, like trying to fight the extradition, he was wearing a Ron Paul t-shirt. And so I thought, well, if this guy is kind of thinking like I am thinking around this particular issue, perhaps he's thinking, you know, he's aware of other issues that I should be looking into. I look into Ron Paul, Ron, Ron Paul's probably biggest stick was around ending the Fed or, you know, his critique of the Fed. And that's what led me down, you know, uh, the rabbit hole of the Fed. And this is where it links up with what uh, Ray was just saying, because that just blows wide open your preconceived notions of how the world works, right? You're a kid, especially if you grow up in, in the relatively uh, wealthy Western world, you're like, oh, you know, everything works the way it's supposed to. And I have Cheerios and I have TGIF TV and I go to school and Christmas and, you know, of course, everything's perfect. And, you know, you go down that rabbit hole and you see just how power and influence and wealth works in the world and how many different things it influences and how those influences have manifested in different circumstances in different, uh, you know, atrocities in some cases, unfairness, you know, all that kind of stuff. And the thing that the question that kept burning in my mind was, you know, it, let, let's assume, and I want to come back to this notion of like the evildoer banking and money people, because that's important to handle. And because I, I don't want this conversation to just be another one like, yeah, sure, the international banking guys are the bad guys. And, you know, thankfully, Bitcoin is here to save us all, because that's that's kind of tired. And I think there's more interesting nuance to this discussion. But I did think, man, if when, when you have all the power and all the wealth like that, you could, you know, of the world, basically, you just insane amounts of wealth and power. What is motivating you to continue to do that, especially at the expense of other people, if it truly is at the expense of other people. We're operating on that assumption right now. And, you know, I was forced down the, let's broadly speaking, the realm of spirituality and religion for that reason, because I was like, surely it can't just be more stuff that's motivating this sort of behavior. Are there other motivations that would be motivating this? And it, it seems logical to me that, well, it must be, because when you have all the stuff in the world, that doesn't seem to be, that's not scarce anymore. So it doesn't seem to be a sufficient motivation. And so, you know, what in the realm of spirituality would be a motivation? And, you know, this instigated my interest in psychedelics and shamanism and theology and reading about religion. And, and to be honest, I, I don't, I don't have any answers there because it's hard to nail down definitive things in, in like in that realm, those, those pursuits were incredibly fruitful because I think it just expanded my awareness of the fullness of the human experience, if we can call it that, and like the different elements that that constitute that. And that's been incredibly helpful in, in developing my own personal philosophies. Um, but I, I did come to that question that Ray posed, which is like, is there something deeper afoot in terms of what is motivating this type of behavior? And it could be even in the case of motivating like evil, if we want to, maybe we should even discuss like what that even is or as a, as a notion. But I think oftentimes evil is uh people engage in what we might construe as ego evil but not intentionally 
right? They do it by serving themselves, perhaps more so than serving something else. And the outcomes of that behavior is what might be construed evil because it does so at the expense of so many other people. Um, and I think this is part of the reason why spirituality and religion, like one of the prime notions is that you subordinate the self to something higher because that puts you in the proper position and not to have the material world and all of your actions serve primarily yourself because that's a very destructive way to engage in the world. Nevertheless, this is the, you know, this kind of inquiry into the Federal Reserve System and the, the people that were involved in it and how it came to be and the secrecy and all that kind of stuff led me to this doorstep. So I know we're probably jumping like 10 steps ahead in this conversation, but um, do we want to discuss motives uh, here? Because it's like the book is incredibly well documented, you know, Eustace does an incredible job and uh, Gia were Griffin later. I mean, there's, it's not really contentious that this was, uh, there was an agenda here. It was very secretive and certain banking interests wanted to establish this system because it favored their agenda, right? And you can debate the merits of the agenda and how the system has worked vis-a-vis -vis other systems, whatever. But, you know, that's pretty well established, but motives in terms like Motives is the big question as far as I'm concerned. Is it purely greed? Is it power? Is it subordination? Is it slavery? Is it something deeper on a spiritual level? So I don't know you know, if any of you guys want to jump into that, but that's what I think is most interesting here is, is the question of motives. So just, just to put a pin in that, John, like uh, we're all in agreement on this call that this secret, so-called secret meeting happened, right? 100% happened. This is sure. not a conspiracy theory. This is not something on a, in a film where, oh, yeah. I don't so, think that part's contentious. Okay. I don't think for, even for like us. the conspiracy theory. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't think like even the people that deride, you know, the the the, the people who call it, you know, people like Eustace Mullen. I don't think people question that aspect of his work, that 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 these meetings happen and these were the people involved. I think it's, you know, it's the more nefarious uh, motives that 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 people like Eustace place on on these meetings and and the these bills and laws and stuff that get passed, that's where the, it, you know they start calling it conspiracy. But I don't I don't I don't think there's that much uh, contention on like you know the characters involved in this and how it came to be. I don't know, man. You speak to an NPC and you tell them, yeah, well, six, I mean, six dudes got yeah. on the train in Hoboken and you know. <laughs> Off they went to Jekyll Island. They're like, yeah, whatever. You've watched too many movies. You know, go back, go back. Sure, and... sure. But people that have looked at it, I mean, like, I, I, right. I, I don't think that's the crux of the the argument against this this whole system and the motives that animate it. You know, that that certain people were involved because you'd explain it away, like, well, of course, J.P. Morgan and Warburg were involved. They were the top banking. They were the brilliant banking minds of the time, and you know, the the policymakers wanted to put together a system that was going to regulate prices and and provide liquidity and smoothen out the business cycle, the ups and downs, all that kind of stuff. There's, so the, it's very easy to rationalize a lot of this stuff. And of course, these interests have interests in politics, in media, in every industry you'd care to mention. And so of, there's a lot of narrative crafting that has gone on and that continues to go on to this day, as we have just seen in the last two, three years, right? Where powerful interests craft narratives, censor any narratives or information that's counter to their narrative. And in that way, they're able to 
you know, uh, determine truth effectively, or at least craft mainstream what what main, what what the average person might think is is right or wrong or true or false. Um, but anyway, it's just you know, um, back to the the question of motives. What do you guys think? Uh, John, I have to give it to you, bro. You're a total savage. You brought down to the question why, right? So we already have a vague idea of who these central bankers, right? Uh, these guys are bankers. They think about money, right? But why are we doing it? Is it just for money? It might make logical sense, but when you consider for a moment that they actually can create money out of nothing. They're not really doing it for the money. That is simply a means to an end for them to corral and employ vast resources under their control. Should you take control of the financial pillar, you will then have the ability to buy up the pillar of media and thus control people's minds. And should you be able to control people's minds, you will eventually be able to buy political control and thus have control to the militaries of the world. And once you have the militaries of the world, you start seeing the ability to make massive geopolitical changes in the world, which we saw very clearly with World War One and Two. But then again, comes why? Why are they doing this? This agenda is obviously anti-human. They could have been a hell of a lot richer if they were focused on different things. They didn't have to do it this way. And then you start researching more. So, okay, let me understand really why are they doing this? It is a power motive, but power for what effect? Do they just want to rule the world forever? Okay, that could make sense. I guess it's just evil dudes like the comic books, but is that all? What is their real motive? These people have a religion. What are their real beliefs? And that's when it starts to get really scary. That's when it starts to get to a point where everything that you believed, you know, all that comic book stuff, I used to be an atheist, never believed it, thought it was a joke, old man in the sky, blah, blah, blah. Then once you get to the bottom of this thing, you start to see, you know what, these guys actually have a faith, all their own. And they have a prophecy. That they're trying to fulfill. Now, before I get into any of that, perhaps it's best to bring it back to brass tacks and understand an example that really outlines that their motive is not just profit. And the best example of that is World War I. Talking about World War II and the list and the bankers and all that, it's useless unless you understand what happened in World War I. I don't want to get too deep down this thread. But, you know, we are people on this call that are concerned with a solution. We're not academics. We don't just want to argue over all these little points like these 9-11 conspiracy theorists arguing over thermite, planes, x-ray, plasma, dissolving beams, all this. Like, no, man, let's just figure out who and why it happened, though, for what purpose, so we can actually do something about it. So to that effect, World War One. What happened there? You know, Russia, England, and France declared war on Germany, and a battle was raging. The bankers were supporting Germany, and Germany was kicking so much ass that there wasn't even a single shot fired on German soil. In fact, the Kaiser didn't want the war. He had made, I think, five or seven peace treaties to say, hey, let's go back to the way things were. Let's just give this thing up and go home. But England didn't want that. And the English went to the central bankers and they said, hey, you guys are funding Germany. 
fund us so we can win this thing. What do you guys want? And what the central bankers asked for, and they got, is the key to all this. Why did World War I start? And what happened to change the trajectory of World War I? What could England have possibly offered these guys this changed the entire course of history. Because remember, World War One. and I'm giving you the record the answer. And by the way, I didn't know what this answer was, why World War One actually started. I was just another typical brainwashed American kid that just heard, oh, yes, yeah, so this Archduke Ferdinand character was, you know, enjoying a nice street parade and someone shot him in the head. And, you know, all these alliances happening. So the European justice, justice decided to start killing each other like animals for a decade. You know, we had atrocities like the Battle of Verdun, where 800,000 of the best of the French youth were wiped out in a week, and they just kept going. All right, I believe that growing up. That was the reason was is that the target was Russia, which is all of Eurasia, the biggest country in the world, the connection point between East and West. It's always been the prize. I think Eugene talked about this often. I highly recommend between two ages. A book written by Zygmunt get to the bottom. In that book, he references things like the technocratic era, etc. Eurasia was surprised because Eurasia under the Tsar had the lowest national debt in the world. He hardly owed anything to the national bankers. 88% of the land was owned by the peasants. The prime minister, Stolypin, had some very progressive policies out. So they wanted to target this guy and bring him under their heel, just like they did to England, just like they did to France, just like they did to Russia. They managed to lure him into the war. I don't know much about that side of it. But their plan was to break him for Germany to wipe him out, and they could go in and take over Russia, basically, with the federal bank, just like every other country. But then, somehow, they got an offer from England. And what England offered them was so enticing that they said, okay, let's give up all of Eurasia for this thing. I don't even want to get into what that thing is, because again, that's too approaching the line a little too much for my tastes. But I can certainly link you guys to some sources afterwards. So if you know that, you know it can't be purely profitable. What is actually forcing them to go down this path? And there is something driving them. It is literally driving them with the religious zeal to go down this path with all the fanaticism of a religious fanatic. And that's very hard for our minds to comprehend because these are bankers, right? These are people that deal with numbers and logic, but we just can't get it. And that was the part that was so hard for me to accept. That is the part that led me down this, I don't even want to call it a religious rabbit hole, but it, it led me down the path to figure out, okay, what's up with these fairy, fairy tales? What's going on here actually? What is the truth? Let me read all these books. I went to Catholic school. So I read the Bible, right? The Old Testament. I read the New Testament. And honestly, the New Testament you know, just didn't make I went to Catholic schools. None of that stuff really made sense to me. It kind of led me down toward atheism. But then I opened up to other sources. And I found the last testament. And I started to see differences there. And I was like, wow, as crazy as this stuff is, it makes sense. And then it puts it all in perspective. And that might be way out of scope for this call, but I think uh, I'll leave it at that as far as my journey down that path. Anybody want to chime in? John, yeah, I'll talk a little bit. Um, so the question is motives, more or less. Um, 
what motivates and you know as as if i if i can look in context to this book you know if you could if you could start at the really the panic of 1907 which really is a fundamental portion of this piece and i put i put myself in the shoes of somebody well established at that time jp morgan for example and if i would go from more from the human route again i don't know what he's thinking i don't know the motivations of that specific person um but you can imagine the emotion that comes over you at that point i want to do something to alleviate people's pain per se and and i look at i look at these things and i know you talk john you talk about this specifically what emerges um in fundamental interactions between organizations and people and things that kind of get clouded into what we see now today. And I look at the motivations and the desire to alleviate pain is so fundamental for people that if, if I could just do X, then it would alleviate someone's pain, somebody else's pain in those examples. And you know, if I could, if I could look in and put myself in the position of of this person at this time of creating this instance, you can understand why someone would want to go and and do this thing is to create this this Federal Reserve system or this this system that would help. But but as we see through history, through time and time again, the desire to help is always confiscated in some capacity and and i would say is rooted with good intentions and turned on its on its backside and used for for not good it's 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 used for coercion it's used for um things that are that are not beneficial for the masses maybe for certain people and organizations and you know, I know we've talked about this ad nauseum, but I, I can, if I could put myself in that shoes, and and I don't agree with it whatsoever, but I could understand how somebody might get to that position for a desire to alleviate pain, especially in a financial crisis. You can understand it, and but I think I think what if I can use the analogy from nature, you know, I grew up on a a, a small farm in in rural ohio and what you struggle with every single day in some capacity is nature is there you don't get to choose when it rains you don't get to choose when the sun shines you don't get to choose um how the the soil um is is fertilized you don't get to choose any of those things you have to work within the system that you've been given but if you could change one thing at an instance that you could actually change the natural law, for example, to suspend, um, you know, sunshine for some point, if you could make it rain in some capacity, you would always use that, that, um, I guess, desire to, to do good for you, but it doesn't do good for everyone that's experiencing that same capacity. And I think I think that's what I've seen through these these pieces, especially on institutions, on um, on organizations, is that we've gotten so far from the emulation of nature, and have gotten to more just control of of people's perspectives rather than allowing 
you know, institutions to emulate nature and emulate the things that are around us in the natural order to, and, and it, it just, it, it compounds into just inappropriate applications of power in so many different instances. And, and I think the balance of that is bringing that, bringing that back down to a more grounded, simple and, and comprehensible systems because you need order against chaos. You need that. Like, I mean, you can't, you can't have food without, you know, you have the, the nat natural chaos in and around you. You have to order it in some capacity, but you have to work within the constraints of nature to be able to make that applicable for the long term, not just extract and then um, and not put back in. There's a balance to that all, the, all together. And I just feel like the systems that, again, through this book has created is the motivations is the desire to want to help and control. But what that compounds to is is systems that that are beyond your control at that point yeah you know i i think you know i think a lot of people would hear something like what ray said and said you know boil it all down and this is a battle between good and evil basically and i think a lot of people would balk at that because it's just not part of their worldview it's like look we're talking about systems of organization here and engineering and not that more esoteric whatever stuff but I mean, Hazler, what you're saying, like, it, it's almost like you either believe there's truth in reality or there isn't. And that truth is that to which when you're most integrated with most uh, produces the best outcome, something like that. And so what you're saying in the realm of like how we cooperate and organize ourselves and importantly, the ethics or the ideas or the principles that animate how we construe those those forms of organization do matter like there is a qualitative difference between them and this is why i think you can you can rationally construe these sorts of issues as having a strong moral dimension i.e as actually being a battle between what you know and there's a lot of contention on these issues and perhaps they this is why they're contentious because they're not easily defined but between good and evil because if you imbue a system with, with certain ideas or principles, and let's again say, for example, one might be more self-serving principles, like my desire for control or my assumption that I know better than others and all those other things. And another one, which is imbued more with an adherence to fairness, more with a respect and recognition of the divine unity between all people, let's say, and those things, those two sets of principles and values that you then go ahead and build a system with will net different outcomes. And in my opinion, those out, one will be more destructive or, de, you know, degrading, and one will be more constructive and integrated. And I think that's a pretty, you know, as far as my framework is concerned, that that is kind of, or not even kind of, because the question becomes, where do those values come from, right? From where do these values and principles that are more generative, more integrative in the world and in yourself, where do they actually come from? And if you admit whatsoever that there's truth broadly in the world, you know, and this is, I'd say, at the foundation of, of the religious or, or spiritual view and construed in many different ways, then I think that's what you're saying. You're saying there's a departure from those things and that is construed as evil. 
or you can align with those things and that is construed as good. And the tension between the, the individuals or the energies that are going in opposite directions is that so-called eternal battle between good and evil, which is why I also think, you know, when I, when I first went down this rabbit hole and again, I'm assuming, you know, none of our pictures of how the world is, is a hundred percent right. But I think we've pieced it together enough to know it's not what we were, we thought it was. And I was fairly despondent when I realized all the corruption and all the unfairness and all the, you know, the power plays and all that kind of stuff. And it was, it, you know, I said it led me down that kind of road of spirituality or religion, but almost out of necessity, because not only was I trying to figure out the world at that point, I was trying to figure out how I myself can stay integrated and contend with, with the world as I was seeing it. And among other outcomes of that pursuit, you come to the realization, it's not going to be resolved through an us versus them sort of approach, you know, just pitched battle or pitch after pitch battle to keep the bad guys at bay, because the fundamental, you know, if you down at the bottom of that spirituality rabbit hole is a fundamental unity, as far as I'm concerned. And so you can't, I don't think you can rectify the problems by acting as though there's an extreme and forever disunity. I think you have to approach it a different way. And it was those pursuits that allowed me to reconcile the, the despair in my own mind and, you know, approach life with that at the forefront. And then, you know, to put a somewhat of a capstone on this particular point, that's why I found Bitcoin so fascinating and, and why I'm so enthusiastic about it. Because back to that prior point, I think it is a system that is imbued with those principles or ideas that are more generative, that are more like harm, uh, that are more harmonious with ourselves, with one another, and with nature, which are further integrating ourselves into some broader truth about the reality we experience, rather than erecting an artifice, a fragile artifice that ultimately is destructive or degrading or separating, or is you know is is in causing a lack of harmony, let's say. And so in that framework, you might say that, and I think a lot of people will do, and I think there's a lot of why, if you analyze a lot of our behavior, there's a, there's a reverence, there's a sacredness ascribed to Bitcoin. And I know a lot of people have a problem with that, but simply in the, conf, in the looking at it in terms of it being imbued with certain values and principles, and then asking yourself the question, from where do those values and principles derive their authority? derive their capacity to uh, facilitate a certain outcome when they're implemented in different systems in the world, both in the system that is your own consciousness and the systems that we might engineer out in the world. And so I think, bringing it back home, in that context, when Ray says something like, you know, fundamentally, this is a, a thing between good and evil, I think there's a, a rationale there. But I, the what I would caution people is not to think like evil thus must be destroyed in the way we typically think about it. Like, you know, get your swords and, and shields and, and you just go beat the bad guy. But it's almost, you know, it's like that, uh, I think it was Solzhenitsyn quote, you know, evil runs down the center of, of all of our hearts. And it's that internal battle for us to rectify that within ourselves. And then to the extent we can assist or foster that reconciliation in others, rather than seeing them as eternally in opposition to what we are. Yeah, no. A long yes. minute there, but yeah. No, what else is new? There's a good rip. But I want to bring this up, something, and to stay on this, this line of thought, in the book, uh, and again, it's going to 
it's going to trigger a few people because um, it, it, it outlines a meeting that took place in 1773. We, we think that Federal Reserve Act was brought in in like 1910. They've been planning this for centuries, centuries. Like the first, the first stab at this was with Alexander Hamilton way back when. And mm -hmm. in the book, it talks about uh, the meeting in 1773 at Maya Amschel Bowers goldsmith shop, right? Which, if anybody didn't know, changed their name to Rothschild. And this is where all the conspiracy theorists are going to get their goosebumps and whatever else. But here in this book on page 65, Mullins lists some of the points. And if these are some of the points that if it's a faith they're following, or if it is some kind of God-given like plan that they put forward at this point, point one is number one. And this was when Rothschild wrote this, Bauer wrote this when he was in his mid-20s, I think, or early 30s. He argued that law was force only in disguise. And then he reasoned that it was logical to conclude by the laws of nature, right lies in force. Now, if that's your first point of a 30-point master plan, and then number four, if you just look at number four, he argued that the use of any and all means to reach their final goal was justified on the grounds that the ruler who governed by the moral code was not a skilled politician because he left himself vulnerable and in an unstable position. So he argued that the use of any and all means to reach their final goal. Sure. Well, it's very there's, Machiavellian. There's more points here. <laughs> we can, but I can <laughs> see Ray's ready to Ray, Ray's ready. <laughs> uh, yeah, I could talk. I mean, yeah, those points, yeah, you could liken it to Machiavelli, but it's, it's very basic. Victory at any cost, might makes right. But when you, when you decide to boil all that down, it's actually coming to a very core ideology. And that ideology is the very nature of the schism. The question you have to ask yourself is what makes someone good? There's so many different perspectives on everything from law, culture, manners, everything. And that's what I was looking for. What is actually evil here? No one ever actually told me. I know I'm a nice person. The path is laid with good intentions, blah, blah, blah. But what is it actually? What's the cause of all the suffering in the world? These ideologies are all the same. They spring out anywhere. But eventually, what they metastasize into, and this was actually their very origination point, is, and I'll say it in one word, which is the cause of all evil, all racism, everything. One word. That word, supremacism. If I can convince myself that I have a right to, so I'm smarter, because my, I would make a better word. Because I'm just better than you, just because, then I will find a way to explain away and rationalize any action at all Based that I'm actually doing it for the greater good, because these savages can't believe themselves. You don't have to be white. It happens to black people too. Supremacism infects everyone. There are many examples. Of 
Supremacism is the cause of everything. How I got to that understanding, you know, I started reading about, you know, what is the, um, what are the biggest examples of supremacism, right? Let's take an example form I'm from. Egypt, I was born there, right? Can you think of a supremacist and their fate? It's in all our Old Testaments. He was the Pharaoh of Egypt. He believed so strongly in his right to rule, just because he was the morning star, this, that, and the other. That when a prophet of God came to him and asked him one simple thing, Please let these people go. You have no more right over them. God has seen to extend his mercy out to them. He refused. He refused even when Moses crushed his magicians. His magicians were so crushed by the acts of Moses and God that they even bowed down to Moses as God themselves. And the Pharaoh had been executed, crucified immediately. The Pharaoh encountered, you know, uh, cataclysm after cataclysm, ending with the loss of his own son and still. He wouldn't give up that there was someone above him, God above him. He was number one. It ended with him drowning in the sea after Moses, through the help of God, parted the seas. And only then, on his last breath, did he admit that God, the God of Moses, was superior. So all these people are following that same path. It is the path of supremacism. So you have to study that very carefully. And you have to try to find its origination. I actually found its origination point the best I could. And it was actually in the last testament. There's a chapter called the Cave, chapter 18. You should read it. The story of the character that architected all of this is mentioned six times in that book. And I will remind, remind you that is the only book that we have in this world that has not been changed. So whatever you want to say your religion is, you should seek out the last testament. And when you find the story of the architect, it will explain very clearly that the cause of all this is supremacism. I don't know if it started with this guy, the devil, quote-unquote, it was definitely around before him. But this is the nature of the virus. It is supremacism, first and foremost, and any one of us can fall into it. America, the indispensable nation, that is another veneer of supremacism. We Americans are better because we're indispensable. Indispensable to who and for what? I'm chosen and you're not. I can leave it at that. When you say last testament, are you talking about the Quran? Yes, I am. You know, this this goes back to what I was, you know, trying to say earlier, which was basically, I think that's, and you know, I'm not here to make a you know fundamental truth claim about any system of faith anywhere in the world, but it seems to be that. That, that attitude of supremacy, Ray, that you were just talking about, I mean, I think you could equate that to the supremacy of your own self, right? The ego self, if you want to call it that, versus, you know, and of course, you need things and you have to satisfy those wants and there's people that you're responsible for and all those sorts of things. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm saying getting it in the proper hierarchy seems to be very important in terms of generating a healthy, stable, happy life and community and nation and people and all that kind of stuff and it i think w one of the hallmarks of any faith really and the reason why the notion of god or at least uh, it seems logical to me that one of the reasons that it's so appealing uh to humanity or it, it shows up everywhere is because it's basically saying you're not the top of everything 
right? You serving you for everything is not the top of everything. There's a higher place than where you place yourself. And maybe we can, you know, that place is forever indefinable, right? You can't nail it down. It's everything and it's nothing and it's everywhere and it's nowhere, you know, like, but just in terms of orienting yourself, just know that, that if you fundamentally serve yourself and your interests more than anything, if it's at the absolute top of the hierarchy of the pyramid, then you're basically on the path to destruction, you know, to use somewhat, you know, narrative or metaphorical terms. And, um, you know, that's been, I, I feel like I've come to that realization through other means and I'm now, uh, familiarizing myself with its representation in, you know, traditional religious texts and stuff, but it seems to be very pervasive. And, you know, I think there's a, a tremendous amount of wisdom in that. And, that would seem to be the folly of, and, and let's like, let's cards on the table. When Eustace Mullins and Ezra and all these people talk about the banking interests over the last 300 years, they're often Jewish people, right? Like the Jewish banking cartel, it's often talked about that. But, you know, fi you know, in Roman times, it was other people in ancient Chinese times it was other people in ancient Egyptian times, you know, and, and it's not even there's always people that would take advantage of circumstance. There's always people to whom power for their own self-aggrandizement, for their own gain, will be appealing. And it seems that the systems that we've used to organize ourselves and to presumably pursue progress, and that's a whole nother kettle of fish, how we want to define progress, but has left open the possibility for these systems to be co-opted by people that serve themselves, that are that are motivated to serving themselves more than something else to take advantage of that. And again, side note, why Bitcoin is so exciting is because I think that closes a lot of those doors to doing that. And hopefully that means we end up in a place that's more generative, that's more integrating, that's more constructive than than destructive. But you know, I I, I totally agree with that point. It, and that's why I think these discussions, you know, these more deeper elements of, of these discussions are so important and why it's important not to get hung up on the attributes of the characters in our given time or paradigm, you know, like, Oh, oh they wear hats and they, they, you know, they follow this particular faith or they're from this particular place. I see that as less relevant. And I see that, you know, my own research into Ezra and Eustace and, you know, a lot of other commentators on this, they place a lot of, emphasis on you know the jewish or zionist sort of orientation of, of these interests and that's interesting it's interesting to investigate what sort of worldview and set of beliefs might be you know contributing to this but ultimately i think it, it it's another wall of separation that we put up to actually finding the solutions what i was saying earlier is that we fundamentally were united fundamentally there's no there's no difference between us it's just that and so acting as though that thing is, is what's separating us, skin color, religious orientation, whatever, is an impediment to actually finding a true solution to these things that ail us as, as individuals trying to cooperate with one another, rather than a solution. And so, you know, and my, and my final point is, I think, Jace, you, is to what you were saying, because, or, or sorry, Princey, of course, if anyone analyzing the world, let's say without an ethical framework and without that understanding that I just pointed to, of course, you're going to look out of the world and be like, might makes right. I'm stronger than you. I can take your fucking sandwich. What the fuck are you going to do about it? About it? Nothing. So I get your sandwich, right? And why, 
if you have no, and again, this is why a moral framework, i.e. the religious domain or the spiritual domain, whatever you want to call it, has been so integral to human civilization, in my opinion, because if you just operate on the assumption there is no meaning, everything is material, then the only rational conclusion is might makes right. Of course, I'm bigger than you. I take what, what you have, right? But if you believe that there's something else going on, if you believe there's something to, to be more subordinate to, right? Not, not just your supremacy, your aggrandizement and your power and, and the ability of your power to accrue things to you. But if you actually believe in your bones, not, not say you believe it, but after you believe it, that there's a higher thing than you and that that necessitates that you serve it more than you serve yourself. And that is what, that's the orientation, that's the attitude that fosters more peaceful, more generative, more productive and constructive interactions between one another, in my opinion. And um, so, you know, perhaps it's just, this is oversimplification, but I would say anyone who acts in that manner over the course of history to snatch up as much power as they can and use it to, you know, aggrandize or benefit themselves exclusively are falling, are blind to that, are ignorant to that. And, you know, perhaps this is another reason why the truth shall set you free, because that ignorance needs to be resolved with the truth. And once you get that, that is what ultimately frees you up from the from the insatiable appetite for more power, because those those are the those are the two outcomes. It seems to me. Wow, bro, that was beautiful, bro. You're absolutely right. You got right down to it. And for me, I went through the same line of thought in my head. Okay, what's going to give us the power back? What's their main hook is that. They can keep us in a state of reactivity. They do things and we react. Because we don't have that grounding, right? To be able to just be planted and not be effective by what they're doing. We have our own trajectory. We can't, you know, the moment they're not able to tweak us or tilt us, then it's the power is back with us. What does it take for humanity to have that? How does that look like? Is it a faith? Is it a belief system it would have to be something like that which one is it christianity is it judaism is it buddhism is it islam is it Taoism? Is it Tao? what is it i began looking for that because i began to realize that no matter how smart you are your intelligence will actually be used against you if your heart is not open so that you can be led something must lead you these guys have their own hidden hand form of this matrix that they have constructed, but there is another hidden hand that's far more powerful. These guys plot and plan all day. They have armies of these think tanks, all with these little eggs being hatched at any time. They're willing to do anything, literally anything to win. They will like sacrifice young children and drink their blood if you're willing to do that and kill millions, even billions of people. How do you compete with that? Because when I started fighting, I came to understand that it's not really the bigger guy, the stronger guy, or even the more well-trained guy that thinks. In any real fight, it's always the guy that's willing to do what the other guy will not do, that has the edge. Knowing that, and knowing that I'm up against characters that will literally have zero limits, how am I going to beat them? As a fighter, I was thinking, as an intellectual. 
how do we win? Spinning is all that matters right now. If you lose this, we're fucked. I'm not going to raise my children in, in, you know, some, you know, even worse version of Blade Runner. Like, no, no it's not going to happen. So how do we win? What does it take to win? What can I do that these guys are not willing to do? And the more I thought about it, there's only one thing these guys, only one thing these guys won't do. One. And that's the thing that I do every single day. Five times a day, I do. I prostrate completely to my creator. I say, please help me. I am your servant. They'll never do that. They will never put their head down to any force greater than that. Because they view themselves as God. That's the one thing that we have that they want. That's the one thing that we can do. And in that, it requires us to believe one simple thing, that God is one. And in the oneness of this entity that has created all this harmony throughout the multiplicity of nature, its existence is undeniable. So how does that faith work? If we all put this entity above us, okay, great, I believe in God, yeah, okay, is that all? No, it's a lot deeper than that. And that we can talk about, but this is the only thing that can give us victory. Take away our reactivity, take away racism, you know, a system of thought that forbids any kind of economic terrorism. This is essentially what we're fighting, right? They have this world, I call it economic apartheid, but it literally is economic terrorism, right? So I began thinking, okay, if I have this faith, I'm going to do this, how do I beat these guys? Good news is we've already started that path. We're all victims. I'll leave it at that, bro. I keep talking about this, but good job, man. You got right down to it, brother. Savage. Drop the mic, Ray. I think John's just left. Okay. <laughs> mic drop. <laughs> I had to turn off a phone alarm that was going off. Um, no, I mean, you know, we're we're in the thick of it now, right? Because we're, we're way deep. But I mean, the, I think this is why so many of, first of all, I'll say that again, like, I think this is why Bitcoin is so interesting, because it seems to be a system that is imbued with these principles that, you know, kind of flatten the ego, at least one element of it, because everyone is treated the same, and you can't co-opt it, and you can't make it favor you in any particular way. And so this is like, it's a it's a supremacist worst, you know, nightmare, right? Because it's it's not allowing them to express that in any particular way. And to people that see the value in those principles, right? So see the value in truth, see the value in fairness, see the value in treating one another as though on some fundamental level, you're equals. Well, that's that system is going to draw those people in. And here we are, you know, and I think this is a lot of Bitcoiners, whether they, you know, drawn in for many reasons, but certainly stay because, you recognize the presence of these principles and then you start to ask yourself why you know why am i drawn to those and and why are those so important and how fundamental are they and from where do they come you know all these deep philosophical and theological questions that we've been you know touching on here today and um so i i think you know i think there's a lot of validity validity to that and i think you know ray it made a very interesting point, you know, and I'd never considered it that way in terms of, you know, the one thing that let's say those people that serve themselves above all else are not willing to do is to engage in an action that displays or expresses their submission to something else. And 
the the last point I'll mention is I, I I think about Ray, you also brought up like this uh what can keep you from being thrown off course, right? What 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 can what enables you to be centered no matter what? And I think you know that is another test of the most profound truth. So what ideas or principles when you integrate them into yourselves allow you to be most steadfast regardless of circumstance yes brother that is the question it's different for everyone but if you want some hints what is the one system of belief out there that is willing to defend its boundaries there's only one that i can think of Just get to it in life i think john Frozen. Anyone else hear me? John is a really guided person, bro. He's, he's like gets right into it, man. Savage. I love it. It's beautiful. Dan, I wanted to pick up off a point that you had mentioned. You know, you you brought up those those tenets that they kind of originally established the system by, you know law equals those who are able to apply force really um when i think of that i think the complete inverse to that is i think humility invitation and in the ability to truly invite into a system and just and simply again it's 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 going back to the the, the piece that when you when you're inviting someone into to a scenario you're inviting to share really the the attributes of that system you're inviting to allow creativity within the bounds of 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 that essence and i and i think the 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 essence of this book is is ray to your point the the ego believes that we know more than individuals and groups and that we can control the, those aspects and tax every single exchange that happens within that context and extract and i think the the complete solution to that is the the total opposite that opposite of that it's the invitation it's the it's the invite to say hey come and build come and add value and and allow those things to to happen naturally without coercion without anything else of that capacity um and and i think to me that that is an that's the ability to be to to try to develop and change and build on things that are completely free to everyone not just a select few and i think that's what we what, what we all participate in no one gave us the ability to you know I, I guess experience gravity to experience you know fresh air oxygen all of these natural things that we get to experience on a daily basis no one controls any of those pieces but we all get to participate and add value within that and I think that's a that's a huge piece of their antithesis of that original point that you made of like 
if you could just if you just focus on that law and force aspect of it it's it it just drives it to to terrible terrible places it's almost like you're Sorry, saying guys. oh john you're back i'm, I'm back <laughs> <laughs> having problems here today no problem you're it's good. almost like you're saying uh central banking or yeah that structure is for the very select few and that bitcoin is for everyone yeah absolutely and yep and that's the polar opposite to to what ray was talking about earlier uh, of what we have what we have you know all fallen down the rabbit hole of here is opting out of that system which we have to bow to to something else completely which is connecting all of us globally yeah which is a beautiful thing yeah and you know on a more practical level than i guess some of the stuff we've been discussing you know the i think the reason why so many of us do it and why it's so again proof of the of how generative and harmonious these principles can be is like just, we've all played a game growing up right like soccer or you know schoolyard game or whatever and if the the rules of the game not only were constantly changing or let's say you want to be a professional athlete of some kind let's say you want to be in the nfl right and you're running your 100 yards every day you're trying to be as fast as you can and you're you're playing for however long the play clock is 45 seconds or whatever and in and you're playing for 15 minute quarters and like you're training your body to optimize for a certain set of rules and then you wake up one day and like oh the rules are different now and so you, you've just optimized yourself for something else. And not only are they different, but they favor other people too. So you run 50 yards and you get credited for 10. Your opponents run 20 yards, they get credited for 60. And all of a sudden you're finding yourself in a place where now the work that I've put in is not optimizing me for the game I'm actually playing. And it's tilted against me, you know, by rules being applied differently to me and, and other people. And I think broadly what we see out in the world today with the despair, the addiction, the depression, the substance abuse, the general fracturing and disorientation that so many people are feeling is because they've all, back to our earlier point about just being born into this system, they're born into a system that has those qualities and they're oblivious to the, to the, the detrimental effects of those qualities. And so they're just, they're victims of the shifting sands and the unfairness of that system. And no one, you know, I, I don't, I don't think it's right to relinquish responsibility regardless of your circumstance, but you can certainly empathize with people that are forced to act in this system and are being so fragmented and disoriented as a result, which is again, why I think we'd all agree why Bitcoin is so exciting because it's a set set of rules that aren't going to change that are applied the same to everybody. And then the game is fair. That's all anyone really asks for. The game is fair. And then, you know, depending on how hard you work, what you optimize for, whatever your thing is, you go forth and you can have a degree of certainty, a high degree of certainty that the rug won't be pulled out from under you and that your hard work will incrementally lead you towards the thing that, things that you deem to be most meaningful or valuable. And I think that as a result of that, all those negative emotional responses get dramatically dialed down because they're in many cases caused by that that unfairness that's felt if not identified in that system and so you know again that that, that would be perhaps another you know tick in the column of why despite 
even if we want to attribute good intentions to the people that erected this system that Mullins profiles in this book, which I don't think is is fair or accurate because I think they had more nefarious uh, ideas or at a minimum, they had their own agenda for their own self-serving you know, reasons. But I think we can discredit that system regardless of its motivations. That's one of the ways we can do it by just saying, look at what it produces and look what it, it like you can expect it to produce that. And we're seeing it all over the place today, and it's being attributed to many different things. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sh this is a multifactorial sort of thing, of course, but I think that is one of the primary causes of this fragmentation we're seeing is that the most fundamental game, the game of money and work and reward, is not only shifting all the time, but it's stacked against you and it's unfair. And we're seeing the man the, the all the problems that manifest as a result of that in the world today. And that's what makes me so damn excited for the world that Bitcoin hopefully will bring about, because I think we'll see the opposite of that. I think we'll see people that are, you know, engaged and motivated and healthy and integrated and cooperative. And again, I'm not painting a picture of a utopia. We're always, you know, what we strive for is always going to uh, exceed our capacity, let's say. And there's a there's a certain tension and anxiety that will always exist there, but I think so many of those problems that we attribute to all sorts of different things today, we will actually come to realize they were attributed to an unfair game. And when that game is made fair, we'll we'll play a better game. We'll have more fun playing the game. It'll be, you know, it'll be more uh, rewarding for everybody involved. And what more could you ask for in terms of balancing the scales, in terms of, you know, rectifying some of those problems? And this comes, this brings me back to these points, John. Uh, and we can we can read through a few more because this is what literally shapes society, uh, and you can see it. I, I'll read point number two. There were twenty five in all, and I think you listed fourteen here in this book. Uh, so number two is political freedom is an idea, not a fact. In order to this, use... this is this is Rothschild, right? Amschel, the, the patriarch yes. of the family. Yes. Yeah, okay. Uh, in order to usurp political power. All that was necessary was to preach liberalism so that the electorate, for the sake of an idea, would yield some of their power and prerogatives, which the plotters could then gather into their own hands. Are we living through that right now? Sure, sure. I mean, all right, number three. Uh, the speaker asserted that the power of gold had usurped the power of liberal rulers. He pointed out that it was immaterial to the success of his plan whether the established governments were destroyed by external or internal foes because the victor had to of necessity ask the aid of capital, which is entirely in their hands. Feel free to jump in at any point or I'll carry on reading. I could hit point four if you want. Oh, point four we already did by the use of any and all means. Uh, Number five, he asserted that our rights lies in force. The word right is an abstract thought and proves nothing. They would find a new right to attack by the right of the strong to reconstruct all existing institutions and to become the sovereign lord of all those who left to us the rights of their powers by laying them down to us in their liberalism. But let's, let's be real about this, right? Like that list is extremely rational like that's a rational tactical just plain language 
this the brass tacks this is what's going on and i think this is the crux of of our discussion today it's like and call it machiavellian call it law of the jungle whatever you want to call it but if you are only seeing the world through a material lens where power is the only is the highest uh, value let's say then that is like i'm down with all that that's the way to play the game that's 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 a rational list i'm sure every other point would be extremely rational if you are just want to win but and, and this is the tension i think you know and i i, I think again this is this i think this uh confirms or validates Ray's earlier point that this is a spiritual battle because what we're saying is either you look at the world as inert and materialistic and law of the jungle and if that's the case i gotta hand it to the guy he's a clear thinker he's extremely rational or you think that there's something else at play something higher at play something more fundamental at play in which case that invalidates strictly that rational mind and that rational list and this i mean some people even construe the character of Lucifer or, or Luciferian thinking as the dominance of the rational mind. You know, psychologists and, and theologians have, have characterized it that way because that's what it leads to, right? And it's the manifestation, right? A Luciferian manifestation when you only engage the rational mind in this reality that we exist within because it leads to those disastrous outcomes. And, 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 and what better in that context, what better proof do you need for something greater that when you when you orient yourself or when you when you restructure your hierarchy to say that there's something greater than the material, there's something greater than power, that it is the opposite of destruction. It it it, it fosters or is conducive to construction, to integration, to harmony. And so, you know, I, I probably broken record now, so I'll shut up on the, on that point. But I, it, it, it's just interesting how it keeps coming back to that distinction, where it's like, if you have this particular orientation or worldview, you know, all the stuff that that guy and all of his acolytes have engaged in, I get it. I can't, I can't knock the rationale. It's a fundamental distinction of what's more, you know, more important, more truthful, more deserving of being in the highest place in terms of how we construe this reality and how we orient ourselves within it. Nobody believes they're the bad guy, right? What's that? Nobody believes they're the bad guy. Like these guys actually. Well, that absolutely. Yeah. Mm. That's what it comes down to. Well, I want to ask you guys a question. So, John, again, got right down to it, right? This mode of thinking, very methodical, very rational, logical. We associate it with evil. These are how evil people think. Where is the source of that? There is a source to it. I don't want to get, you know, ecclesiastical again, but the nature of Luciferian thought, which, by the way, if you're a believer, you shouldn't call him Lucifer. That means the bringer of light. That's what his followers call him. Uh, Diablo is actually a better name. It comes from the Semitic despair. That's where that name comes from. So let's call him Diablo. That's how he thinks. That's how his kind thinks. They don't have our gift of spontaneous creativity they think like machines in a very linear fashion you know that's his whole breed of creation this being diablo is not a human he's another breed of creation but again that's the topic of all topics we won't get into that but let's just say that's where that mode of thinking comes from they think that way because they can't think how we think they don't have the ability to be hyper creative like we are they don't have the ability 
know, that humans have where a bunch of humans motivated to get together and literally change the whole world in a couple of years. Human beings motivated to do incredible, incredible things in a very short amount of time. Whereas these creatures cannot, they think they're more like machines. They have to plan their timelines in advance. And uh, something coming out of left field, like in a decade or two, that just changes the dynamic, they have, it's very hard for them to adjust for that. They did not see Bitcoin coming. It really made things hard for them. And now we see them 14 years later trying to throw the monkey wrench at us. But we already have a great head start. So let's talk one question for you guys. And this is an important question. Because when you start thinking like these bad guys, you know, you kind of go a little crazy. Like, wow, this is how they think. You start thinking like them to understand them, try to figure out their next moves. They'll go insane like that. When I got to this point, the main question I asked myself is, you know what? If we actually get our stuff together and we beat these guys, how good can things go? How good could we humans really have it if we stop this contagion, if we cut this cancer out? Like, how good could the world look and how fast? That's a question I had to ask myself. And that's when I began researching various examples throughout history. The 13 colonies of America are a great example. This is a better example, which again, I can't name because I don't want to go down that road. But the truth is, you know, I believe humans can literally transform the entire world where you can have, you know, a thousand cities like Dubai in the next 10 years popping up everywhere. That's how good we can have. And that is primarily a pro-human belief. Like, humans are fucking awesome, man. We can do amazing things in such a short period of time if motivated. We don't need to add anything. We just need to remove this cancer from the equation. So when I finally began to believe that and really, like, internalize it, it gave me a certain strength. And that's what gives me this hope that inspires people. So I see a world where if we just remove this problem, we win, and we win huge. Ultimately, I'm a builder, yes, but I'm building to remove something from the equation so that humans can just take care of it themselves naturally. Do we all believe that? I'm asking you, all of you. Ray, I love that, man. Yeah, I, I would say to, to echo that point, I think, I mean, that's the essence of faith is belief in something that you don't have truly have evidence for. And I think the the capacity to to believe that life can be better than you can ever imagine is a pursuit worth um giving your life to and not and and john not in some your point not in a utopian way that that we can orchestrate it but allow people to be in that capacity allow people to to dream allow people to to execute and and give them the tools necessary to pursue that um I love the I love the instead of you know going off on the defensive, go on the offensive and 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 orchestrate the capacity in in the world that people want to live in and invite. That's it. I, I think mm -hmm. it's it's that it's it's ignoring you know in some capacities that that piece. Now you know you're going to have to defend and and fight and you know have to have the that unity amongst Bitcoiners and people that that believe. In, in those values, 
to unite around that capacity and invite into a world that that people want to live in people i mean are hungry and desperate for it and and i think when as people as builders as 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 individuals when we can build that in ourselves in our families in our communities and then share that i mean you, you talk about something that's just so powerful is is just opting out of that system altogether is just say no thanks i'm good i'm gonna go do this thing i mean ha, that's just it's just unbelievable you know ray you talked about the 13 colonies it was kind of that instance now we're gonna sail across an entire ocean and embrace some very wild uncertainty, but it's worth it on the other side there because maybe we can build something very beautiful. And I think for a time we had that until, again, the never ending story of the things that are good will always find a way to unfortunately be corrupted, but to, can we build it strong enough where the foundation is so incredible that we can just offset this, this capacity? I think it's a dream worth, worth living. You guys remember? America before 9-11, how awesome New York was before 9-11. Everyone was so positive. Everyone was like, it was such a beautiful energy. 13 colonies were even better, but in our time, that's the closest I can think of it. Like if we just let that continue, what would it happen? I, I like Ray, I want my flying car. And uh, you know, we, we've all been robbed of these things. Uh, it, but it's very, yeah, it's very interesting. It's an incredibly thought-provoking kind of uh, process to go down. And I remember thinking about this when reading um, Hazlitt's uh, uh, book, um, Economics 101, and uh, the, the fallacy of the, the broken window to begin with, and then um, talking about uh, you know life on the gold standard. Um, and more recently, uh, watching uh, Graham Hancock's series on Netflix, uh, the the ancient ancient apocalypse, which uh, maybe Ray was kind of uh, pointing towards some kind of ancient civilizations before. I'm not sure. Um, the mind boggles. Oh, the mind deep. boggles. <laughs> the mind boggles as to to where we could be if if this had not have happened uh over the last especially well ever since 1910 uh when they got together on, on jekyll island but even before that because um you know as we've discussed many people have thought themselves to be supreme over others uh so if we could have all just connected globally in a free open market with a uh, a common currency and shared ideas and added value to each other and built you, you couldn't even fathom where we could be but i'm here for it exactly. and it's going to start unraveling <laughs> in the next few decades yeah exactly. i i mean i just echo what everyone said i i think bitcoin is a force for freedom unlike perhaps the world has ever seen and i think freedom is what you know, you, you you give people freedom with certain parameters, right? Because the, the chaos, you know, if we want to call freedom a type of chaos, has to be bounded with a certain type of order. But if the order that's established, that's bounding the freedom, is based on those, what I've been calling in this conversation, those fundamental or eternal principles, then I think that's where the magic happens. 
And if we're suggesting that we're going to have a circumstance like that, you know, more so than we've ever had before, where those principles can literally be instantiated and agreed upon out in the world and serve as the basis for our interaction and serve as the basis for our freedom to flow in between one another, then, yeah, I mean, who the hell knows? You know, one of the, one, I think, tremendous progress, but the, the question that I love to chew on is our, the, the circumstance of the world that we're in right now has influenced how we think about the world, ourselves, the future, et cetera. And so today, you know, say, well, let's say you got freedom and you got Bitcoin, and you got AI, like what kind of world does that unleash in the future? And you might say starships and citadels in space and flying cars and wormholes and all that kind of stuff. And that may all be the case. And I'm obviously, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued by all of that. But I do think that, I think there's, I, I guess I think there's uh, an influence on how we value things and therefore what we deem to be progress and not that is inculcated in us by the system that we're in. And I wonder, my, my, my main curiosity, because I, I think if, if all this happens, we have a bright future ahead. I, what I'm just wondering is what does bright mean? What does progress mean? Because I think what I may be construing as progress as a result of being wrapped up in the type of system that we have it now and all the things that it manifests in terms of technology and innovation and all that kind of stuff, how will that be different when when the system is different, when people have more freedom, when there's not this dramatically imbalanced ability of actors within that system to siphon off capital and value to their own ends and to have much of the world be a reflection of those ends, right? So call it governments, call it banking interests, call it whatever. The punchline is they've been able to steal from the world for a long time. And that capital, based on their interests, based on what they deem to be good, true, and beautiful, let's say, has been what's been built up in the world because that's the capital available to build it. So what happens, what, what, what manifests, what gets expressed or built when uh, that capital is distributed amongst all individuals and it's all those individuals' decisions and values being expressed out in the market that determines what becomes built, what capital gets devoted to more, how different will the world look and how, how differently will we construe progress? That's the, the question that I you know, I find extremely fascinating. That is a great question, John. How, you know, if we're successful, how are things going to look? Are there any examples from the past? Okay, we talked about the 13 colonies, some we can't talk about. But they're the only other example of a small group of people or that turned into a big group of people that somehow created this movement of financial independence while in the midst of a huge empire that wasn't letting them do what they needed to do. It's Hawala, right? Back when the Roman Empire was number one. They had a rule against agency. We can liken it to third-party payments right now. Couldn't trade on behalf of someone else money-wise in the Roman Empire back then. They didn't like third-party payments. They wanted everything to go through the rails that had been set for them, very much like our banking system today. And all the traders were like, well, man, we it's hard to work with this, man. If I've got a business buying carpets in Iran, dropping them off in Milan, getting wine, selling that to Carthage and back and all this, and I can't function with our agency, how am I going to run a multinational business? 
when I have people to pay, you know, these five different cities and I can't be there. So these traders got together and said, we can't work like this. And the Muslim traders, who had a very close community built on a trust network because of their faith, which came from this book, which has never been changed, their first immutable ledger, right? They said, hey, how about we trade on behalf of each other? You know, my brother in Islamabad, he can, you know, give money to your mother or this and that. Like, if we all have friends here, how about we just have this system based on the trust between us as a community? And we can all do these peer-to-peer transactions amongst each other and make the money flow. And Rome doesn't have to know about it. Hawala still lives to this day. And because Hawala actually made a free market possible through free payments through this peer-to-peer network, that whole empire blew up. And he took Spain. You know, they had the, the best educational centers in the world were from that area. You know, science, literature, physics, economics, everything was blossoming under there. That was the leader of the world. And it's because they actually made the money from They went to a whole new level of civilization, left everyone else in the dust because they figured this thing out. That's what happened. Now, after a couple of hundred years, they kind of fell off because they lost their spiritual strength and they were broken down slowly. And you had these kinds of issues which I won't get into, but essentially it was a peer-to-peer finance revolution. And they are now we're doing the same. Ray, what is that? That phenomenon that you talk about? It's like it's it's so interesting between people and societies. You you get this unbelievable gift and you thrive. And is it complacency? Like what is that 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 aspect of of human beings that you get handed this unbelievable um, gift and and then it as time erodes into it you almost forget why why you're in it to begin with and you take it for granted and you know again those those fourth turning types of cycles but yeah it's just it's such a, a bizarre you know emotion and thing that we experience as human beings. Yeah, that rise and fall happens all the time. And I'll tell you a funny story that I heard. It's about Andalusia in Spain. You know, at the time, you know, you know, Andalusia was very strong, and the Spanish, you know, they sent in some spies into Andalusia to the forest to snoop around. Like these these Moors, these Muslims are too strong. Is there? Let's spy on them and let's see if we can take back our our land, right? And he sent the spies into the forest. And he came back and reported and said, what did you see? He said, I saw a boy in the forest. And I saw him crying while he was reading. And he was sobbing. And he looked like a very rich boy, like an aristocrat almost. And I went up to him and asked him, young man, why are you crying? He said, I'm crying because these passages from the holy book are so beautiful. And he was shivering. He told, you know, this general that what he saw, and the general said, no fucking way are we attacking these guys, man. <laughs> They're going to wipe us out. They're too strong. Fast forward 600 years later, they send another spy into the forest. He sees this young, you know, Muslim boy crying in the forest again. Goes up to him and he says, man, why are you crying? The young boy looks up at him and says, I'm crying because my father won't give me another five concubines. 
Figured out that like say we're going tonight. <laughs> and then we went in there and they cleaned the place out and they took it back. The caliph was cross-dressing, the whole thing had fallen into shit. They gave up their spiritual connection. They got fucked. And it didn't matter how strong they were, how much money they had. They were ripe to be beaten. They should have been. That's basically what happens. And we're seeing that. I mean, you want to you look at how they destroy civilizations? Look at Egypt. That's where I'm from. Everyone talks about Egypt. Yeah, yeah, it's great, this and that. But I look at Egyptians now. I'm like, what the fuck happened, man? Every Egyptian I talk to has no political acumen. They just, they can't think straight. I'm not going to get on to hating on Egyptians. I love them so much. But in just two generations, they completely destroyed that civilization. And what was the first step that they did? The first step was they destroyed the scholars of the religion. Egypt used to, know, used to be known as a place where the smartest people were. And the smartest kid in the family would become a, a religious scholar and would read the holy texts and interpret them and all of that. Fast forward now, the dumbest dude in the family becomes a religious scholar, the rest becomes doctors and lawyers, and then the clerics, the guides, are wiped out. And from there, it's easy to bring everything else down. And we see that happening in every faith, in every culture. It's the same kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think in those uh, those cycles, you know, the strong men, good times, good times, weak men, weak men, bad times, that whole thing. I mean, it seems like the common element in, in, in why the good times come to an end and Ray just basically articulated, but it's hubris, right? And I think it goes back to that thing we were saying before, like perhaps, and again, multiple reasons, but it seems like the unity and the proper orientation that a unifying belief, whatever it may be, has once you, you know a few generations go by and your experience you're born into the success of that and you start to think oh this is because of me this is because of us this is we all did this we don't and you start shrugging off things oh we don't need this we don't need that and i think this is again the that constant tension of uh you know the ego ascending versus something higher ascending and how that balance is struck and how it becomes imbalanced and it seems to be the case that when it becomes imbalanced, hubris and arrogance and everything else seeps in. And that just is an incredibly corrosive and degrading force on pre previously established order and order that was established because of the power of a certain unifying belief and orienting yourself properly in relation to it. And so, you know, what, and a, another interesting question is in this hyper Bitcoinized world that we've been imagining, what is it that will, well, I mean, I guess first we have to ask the question, what are will be the unifying or orienting beliefs, you know, in, in such a world? And should they be established, you know, what might be the reasons why they would be uh, cast aside or, or degraded in some way? Because I think, again, I, I keep saying this, but I think some of those beliefs and principles and ideas that we would put in the highest place, I think they are literally instantiated in Bitcoin. And that's why it's so valuable and that why that's why it works so well. And so there's a, I think that bodes well for us because it, like being that it's the foundation, it will almost be kind of hard to ignore and dismiss those ideas because they're hard coded as it were into our very civilization, but humans can fuck up anything, you know? And so uh, it, we, there's still an element of our own, our own responsibility for that. And I think, you know, in the, in this, this book, back to the book for a moment, conjures up these, uh, sentiments or ideas of like an us versus them. They're the greedy banker class. We're just, you know, people trying to live freely. And uh, I think 
rather than because if you see things that way, it's almost like it, the chronology is is static. It's like, oh, if we just beat them, then we're good. And I think it's more a case of, you know, a constant. Every individual has to take it upon themselves to engage in that constant process of identifying and resolving the so-called evil within in themselves, dialing that down and dialing up the so-called good within themselves. I mean, that's the responsibility that every person has. And if if the, the society and the culture can maintain an emphasis on that and not see things as black and white, us versus them, good versus bad in that sense, but just that the the bad manifests when less and less people engage in that process. The good manifests when more and more people engage in that process. And I think that is a, a way that, you know, a, a so-called sophisticated or enlightened society might be able to prolong that cycle in, in realizing that it, it's upon every individual to engage in that process and not see the world through an us versus them sort of prism that might allow them to maintain the proper orientation and therefore prosperity and peace and whatnot uh, longer into the future than those many examples of the past that some of which you just alluded to. Absolutely, brother. You can't ever, you know, one of the worst things you can do is turn against the rich. All these rich people, they're in the same boat as we are, honestly. They just have more money. And there's a lot of them that can come over and change sides. Maybe one of the Rothschilds find God in his life and change. So we never know who God guides. God can guide anyone. It doesn't matter if you're black, white, Muslim, Jewish, Buddhist, gay, straight, whatever it is. God will guide who he wills. And they'll come over. So we can't allow anything to turn us against our brothers and sisters. Because then we're just being reactive. I agree. And, and another, uh, Ray, your example of the Huala system which I'm not that familiar with, actually. I have to look into it. But it, it reminds me of a Buckminster Fuller quote. It's one of my favorites. It's don't spend your time fighting, you know, the enemy or, or you know, railing against the, the opposition. Focus on building something that makes them obsolete. You know, because that when I was younger, when I first went down the rabbit hole in my early 20s, I was like, how do you, how could you ever compete with this leviathan how could you ever hope to you know meet it and and overcome it and as we've discussed some of the the you know the rabbit holes or tributaries that you're forced to go down as a result of confronting something like that but it also you know that quote and that way of thinking was pretty much the only conceivable answer i could muster it's like you can't beat it on its own terms but you you can make something that obsoletes it that basically makes every individual say you do your thing i don't you're irrelevant to me i don't need you and all that kind of stuff and now i'm not saying it never crosses over to have influence in your life but i think that is the way to handle these things that you presumably oppose to in life it's like fighting them almost gives them an energy and it certainly it takes a lot of lot from you but if you can find a way to make them obsolete, if you can find a way to pursue freedom and truth and goodness and beauty in your own life without needing to engage or interface with whatever the problem may be, well, then I think you're, you've basically already solved it. It's just a matter of, you know, winding the clock forward. And again, of course, you know, Bitcoin is, pro is the quintessential example of that in the world today, because we're saying like, this is one of the major problems that, that power consolidates and concentrates in this way throughout all of history. And here is a mechanism that prohibits that from happening. And all you have to do is make a choice to opt into it. And you can, you can live in that world and you can forget or obsolete the former one. 
to your to your great benefit and likely the, the benefit of everybody else. So, um, yeah, I just uh, it seems it seems like that's what the the people at that time were doing. They were just like, look, we're going to operate on a different set of principles, and at the time they had unifying principles or ideas or faith in addition to existing trade networks or what have you that allowed them to do that. Now we have Bitcoin, which I would say is a several orders of magnitude improvement over, over that, you know, and we'll, we'll see what kind of higher ideas, principles, faith, whatever you want to call it emerges in this emerging system of Bitcoin, because I, I think it's inevitable that the highest ideas will, will be identified and will be revered. It's just a matter of how we construe them and what kind of consensus we get on them. So that's, that'll be an interesting one to observe and probably participate in. Uh, you're actively participating right now, brother. You're one of the most spiritually awakened people I've ever met. Uh, there's two things I want to bring up right now about what you said. Number one, monotheism. Bitcoin is like monotheism in the sea of paganism and idolatry, right? That's its power. That's why the Bitcoin community is so strong, based, whatever you want to call it, they are strong, they defend their boundaries, they will get in your face. That's beautiful. I don't see anywhere else in humanity that that exists right now, except maybe Islam. That's it. The Bitcoiners are monotheists. One coin to rule them all. Let's get all our strength behind this one thing, get it out the door, do not be distracted, defend that boundary. That's beautiful. That is a critical component to success. That's why, no matter how toxic the maxis might be, and I wonder how much there's some real knuckleheads walking around. We need them. We need that strength. We need that foundation. It's monotheism. God is one, one coin, fine. Bitcoin is not God to me, by no means. Maybe the archangel Raphael did it at God's behest. I don't know. But to me, God is God is God. Bitcoin is our tool that close to most closely emulates the natural system. So let's talk about that natural system. Right. So the reason Hawala worked is because, quite simply, it just allowed karma to work again. When money can naturally flow, God has the power to make karma work freely. So the money can be redistributed around. You know, this family worked real hard, made a lot of money. Great. Then their kids became, you know, fat and lazy, didn't do shit. Well, guess what? By karma, by natural law, they should go broke. And all the other young, hungry young hustlers out there that are willing to work, they should have the money. Money is meant to flow with the ebb and wave of human energy and motivation. For man only has that for which he makes effort. The problem is these people are put in all of these um, widgets everywhere, all these blockades to make sure that all the money stays with them. And the rest of the human organism, the body, is deprived of this money. And that's why its limbs are atrophying away and barely able to move. Namely, the six billion people of the global south. I call it economic apartheid. Right? Because they're walling off the garden and making sure the blood can flow to these people. Most of the people and stays with them. Karma can't move anymore. God can't work the magic as easily. Right? Because they've trapped the system. Once we break that, We've won. Then everything can start flowing around again. How does that look like? What is the next step in Bitcoin's evolution if we're to actually make that happen? This is what I've been thinking about for the past seven years. To me, the Bitcoin project is not complete until we have unstoppable free markets. 
How does that look like? Lots of people have tried to do it. I've tried to do it. Paxful is just a little nothing, really. Uh, OB1, Open Bazaar tried to do it. They didn't work and didn't get traction. But honestly, I think the guy that scared them the most has been in jail for 10 years right now. He just celebrated his 39th birthday, Ross Ulbricht. He got close to showing the world of an example of an unstoppable free market, but it was stoppable because he was directly, so it wasn't fully peer to peer. He focused on one particular use case, but honestly, there should be a market from everything goods, services, money, whatever you want, commodities. That's what humanity needs, right? Unstoppable free markets. The Bitcoin project is not complete until we have that. Satoshi Nakamoto put these eBay like functions into the very first version of Bitcoin Core for this reason, but Satoshi left town. So now we have the finish. That's what I see as being needed above all right now. What do you guys think? You go, Jason. Well, I'll, I'll kind of give you a, uh, a personal example. Um, part of during my Bitcoin journey has been the <clears throat> the move from intangible assets to tangible assets and in, in so many capacities and you you know Ray you talked about karma and I, I think about consequences you know that I guess that same terminology real time the ability to learn from pain um, I don't think we've had that in the last you know since since I've been alive in that capacity is People have not been able to learn from their own choices or decisions. The desire to want to not see, you know, see people in pain is so strong right now that it's creating this mass amount of pain almost. And you know, this this free flow of of information and technology. Um, you know, I moved back to a small town. Uh, we we you know, have a business that we're producing real goods and services that people need. And part of the goal and the mission is to build out that capacity just on, on a very local and minute level um, to, you know, prepare almost as insurance to start preparing now that, okay, if, if you know, let's operate within the, the current system as is, but if and when that capacity comes to, to pass, there is this alter, alternative source. And I, you know, I, I, I fully believe that that's Bitcoin, but it's the exchange of, you have so much information on a business on a day-to-day -day level that's passing supplies, goods, um, uh, you know, payroll, um, taxes, all of these different capacities that you just kind of take for granted. And that infrastructure right now, I think needs more than anything needs built out. And I think it takes people to to invest in insurance, really, and and this capacity of opting out and and allowing to just just on the pure practical level, how do we do that? How do how can we do that? Can you create a network or a co-op or a um, you know capacity to barter and trade within that system to offset the the current regime that that you have? Um, I think it's fully possible, and I, I think that's part of the mission is to see how how can we do that, you know, as as small business owners and as just you know one person making a a strive to see if it's you know if it's even possible right now. I think it takes 
hundreds and thousands and millions of those types of people to just embrace it. And, and for those builders and those people trying and, and doing trial and error in real time to see what works and what doesn't, extract the things that don't and build into the things that do work within those parameters that we've been set. I think that's a huge underrated part of the trial and error, the almost the scientific method in real time on business that I think really needs to start expanding at a much larger level. I think one of the things that bodes well in regards to that is I think freedom is pretty uh, addictive once you get a taste, you know? So a lot of people get into Bitcoin and they're like, Ooh, this feels good. You know, like I'm in, I'm in control of my own money again. I'm not being stolen from. I'm like, wow. Like, you know, I'm seeing further out into the future. My time horizon has expanded all these things. You're like, wow, that really feels good. And you just look out on your life. It's like, where can I get some more of that? You know, where, where can I eliminate some dependency? Where can I establish more independence, responsibility, sovereignty, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, you know, I think we're seeing that, you know, a, a recent, uh, example that got a lot of fanfare or is getting a lot of fanfare is something like Noster, right? A protocol for communicating freely built by Bitcoiners, built by the set of people that's really getting a sense for just how important this thing that is freedom is. You know, Ray asked earlier, how quickly are these changes going to happen? Well, who knows, right? But I look around at my life and I, I look into all the Bitcoiners that I, I talk to and people that are getting into this, I'm like, change seems to happen pretty quick, both on a personal level, like how their mentality changes, how their emotions change, how they reorient, how they see the world and what they want to pursue. Their network, their relationships changes pretty quickly. You, you go to a conference, you go to a meetup, you go to whatever, and now you got 20 more, 40 more, 100 more of those sorts of people around you. Um, and, and then obviously your wealth, if you're able to store some of your wealth in Bitcoin and continue doing that and custody it properly, all that jazz, then like the, the changes seem to stack up pretty quickly. You know, it doesn't take long for the, that to develop momentum. And I think, you know, up to this point in Bitcoin, there's been obviously a ton of great progress and development and all that kind of stuff. But I think we're entering into a, a more accelerated era, you know, time here where there's just, it's reaching more of a critical mass and more people are coming into it. More people are understanding the validity of the, the values that are imbued in Bitcoin and they're starting to look outward there. And I think, I think now we're going to start seeing a lot of those things that maybe people tried before, but there just wasn't enough, you know, people available to support those types of businesses or platforms or what have you. Now that's starting to happen more and there is enough people to support it. So when you build something like Nostra and you say, hey, aren't you tired of being censored and deplatformed and having every platform have you by the balls so you can't take your followers with you and all that kind of stuff? Well, how about you can say whatever you want? And how about any client you use, you take your followers with you, you choose it based on the the elements or the like the the attributes of the client that you like and that suits you. And how, how do you feel about sending sats to anyone you encounter on social media for whatever reason as it were like and like that that's happening now and it seems to be the case that there's a lot of people hungry for that and you know at the moment maybe it's mostly bitcoiners but even you know what elon did with with twitter and and people's response to the last two three years i mean there might be still a lot of misunderstandings people misdiagnosing problems but at a minimum there seems to be like a collective sigh of relief right now where it's like wow we went from you can't say uh, the sky is blue on Twitter without being kicked off or censored or suspended. 
And at least, you know, maybe the experience is worse on Twitter now and all that kind of stuff, but at least you can say the sky is blue and there's something profoundly satisfying about that. Now, Elon's other escapades with Twitter, notwithstanding, because, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily a fan, but I just think that the, the point I'm trying to make is that, uh, I think people are more and more appreciating the value of freedom and the more they're able to experience it and feel it in their own life. I think that will accelerate the process. And I think it's that very operating on that basis that delivers to us the prosperity and the peace and the, you know, all the things that we often talk about. And so, <clears throat> you know, it's uh, exciting times, I guess, to say the least. Yeah, it's all about building those parallel structures, right? Which uh, yeah. Jeff Booth has talked about. We've talked about on this call before. A soft shill for uh, Free Cities Foundation. That's what their conference is all about. And that's where you meet all of these other people that are doing this other stuff, you know, whether that's living on a pod in the ocean or, you know, creating some kind of civilization out in the middle of a, a mountainous forest or something. Or another um, subject close to my heart is... It, <laughs> ignoring the state education system and opting out of that because that there's nothing there for you <laughs> that that is one inhumane trap and people are waking up to that and, and just taking more agency and whether you find that first or bitcoin first or whatever it is that you find first you will ultimately find bitcoin we all know this because all roads lead to bitcoin but that the, the the fact that more people are waking up and we're getting more connected and Nostra is a perfect example. I mean, did we just discover the internet? I mean, is this web 1.0? <laughs> you know, is, is web, this web 3.0? No, is this, is, <laughs> is this web like how it was originally envisioned? Like, you know, mm. it, or, or have we had a 20 year experience to get us to, to this point of like, oh shit, this is what the internet should always have been, you know? Uh, well, sometimes you have to walk through the desert for a while, right? I mean, absolutely. That's prevalent aspect of so many stories for a reason, perhaps. But Princey, I mean, that, you, make a, you make a great point. Just to say, like, we're talking about progress and imagining the future. How about when a, we have a world full of people that were actually educated? I don't want to say properly, because that's assuming too much to know what a proper yeah. education is, but way better. You know, like we we were all put through this, like, meat grinder of an industrial education system and it's a wonder that we've come out with any semblance of a free thought whatsoever but when you put when from the time that kids are infants when you really cultivate and stimulate and educate in a in a more proper way more holistic way more truthful way however you want to characterize it imagine all those people then having the tools that are now being built and the freedoms that we've been discussing i mean mm -hmm. that's a huge x factor in 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 how quickly this could happen and how we might imagine the future because education has been atrocious, you know, at least for any period of time that I'm aware of, but certainly our own. I mean, Oh, it's, it's not been so atrocious. John. It, it, it's, it's, it's worked precisely as it was designed. <laughs> <laughs> but you sure. Yeah. It's just something you know, we, we talked about this earlier, right? You know, where could we be? as a civilization, if, uh, if we did not had this fuckery in the central banking and, and had our money stolen from us, but where could we be if it were not for the education system, right? Because that is time that is stolen from you. The, the most amazing time of your life. Let's say you're aged between the ages of three, four, up to 23, 24. 
Every single minute of that day has been assigned for you. You never had a moment's thought. You never had that time to truly become the human being you were supposed to become. And you can have no idea where, where, we, where could we be in, with music, with, with arts, with sports, with writing, with poetry, with science. If those people that were drawn to those things were given just the time of day, just to sit there and think about it and play around with things. I mean, John, you, you, growing up, you might have wanted to play ice hockey for 10 hours a day, right? That could have been your thing. How much of a better ice hockey player could you have been? And then multiply that by hundreds of thousands of uh, you know, other Canadians if they would have been playing 10 hours a day and coaching themselves, you know, not under the watchful eye of some washed up freaking 50 year old dude that, you know, never, never quite made it. But you can, you can now apply that to a violinist, a pianist, a singer, a songer, a dancer. You know, so much has been stolen through that freaking fucking system. And it still persists to this day. And it's getting, I, I feel we're in the final throes of that as well, especially here in Europe. You see countries such as France where they're trying to stranglehold they're trying to make homeschooling very, very difficult and, you know, com make compulsory education like they did in Germany and Holland and Sweden, where you do not have a choice. Uh, and, you know, so but, crazy. But people such as John Holt, he, he started flying this flag in the 50s and the 60s in the US. Um, you know, it takes a little bit of time. But when that starts picking up steam this year at the Bitcoin um, Miami conference, I'm going to be hosting a panel between uh, Corey DeAngelis and Safedin. Uh, Amus, and uh, we're going to be talking about you know this parallel structure, this idea of uh, take separating education from state, and uh, you know the ramifications that could have. Uh, and you think about safe someone that was in school, arguably from the age of five to forty, however old he is now. When did he leave? Like three years ago, as a as a PhD, you know, professor. Mm -hmm. uh, and look what we've unleashed. You know, as soon as you step well, out. And that's what's so another one of these just unexpected elements of Bitcoin is that it's it's seems to me to have instigated a tremendous like intellectual reinvigoration of mm -hmm. some kind, you know, like because to, to understand something so fundamental as Bitcoin is and all the different components of it and everything we've been discussing and more, you have to understand the world almost, right? Like it's 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 almost like how do you you know that old uh, economic trope how do you make a pencil mm -hmm. you know you basically explain the whole world because you have to say trees and ecosystems and machines and minerals and all this kind of stuff and i think something similar is happening with bitcoin it's something so profoundly fundamental and true in a sense or at least Im imbued with with fundamental or true principles that it's for you know it's causing people to look out on the whole world and and recapitulate everything and as a result, educate, self-educate. And I mean, it seems to be a tremendous catalyst or, or force for that. And isn't that amazing, you know, that, that people are feeling so invigorated and so motivated to learn and then to apply what they're learning. And then, you know, again, you, you wind that clock forward a couple of generations and, you know, because we're pulling ourselves out of the cave, basically, you know, we're battered and beaten and just emerging into the light like monsters, like, oh, like you know, but imagine when they, they're born in, in the light, right? Imagine when they have all that from, from the get-go and what, what kind of 
potential, you know, human minds, human beings, humanity generally might have when it's not as so as restrained or, or held down in, in in that sense. And again, I'm not even attributing that holding down always to some nefarious group. I mean, there's many reasons for that and ourselves are to blame uh, a lot of the time. But when we are more aware of that, when we can more engage our potential, I mean, that's when it's really like, well, what is it? I mean, is anything possible? I think anything might be possible. So, you know, to yes. what extent are we able to yes. engage in that possibility? John, that, that's so beautiful you just said, brother. Like, that opens up a question. Imagine, let's fast forward. Let's just fast forward, I'm saying 30 years. Let's say we won this thing. Total victory. Total victory. Eviscerated the virus. Humanity. There's cities like Dubai all over Japan. Humanity is in a massive upswing, a golden age. Our children are happy. They are being raised in a way that fulfills their every potential. Everyone is happy. Everyone has everything they need. Humanity is excelling at a rapid pace. Innovations are just nonstop, and they're all real and appearing before us. How do you feel at that point, looking at your children, seeing them be 10 times better than you were? Like, it's beautiful. Like, wow, this is amazing. And as awesome as our children will be, I just want to put things in perspective, right? They will live far better lives far better education, fulfill the potential on a much higher level from a much earlier age. However, it is we right now, us cavemen, trying to drag humanity out of this cave and into the light that is fighting this last boss literally from hell in the eyes of the creator. We have the potential to keep most experienced ones, brothers. Because at the end of the day, this world is a simulation. Call it whatever name you want, a video game. It's honestly a game. And God, Allah, is the most enlightened of game designers. He made this game to test which of us is best in the intention of our dreams. We have a lot more potential to please God right now as we have a much bigger challenge in front of us. Doesn't matter if the entire world is against you. As long as the angels sing your name, it's a very special place. So, we, in this position of great challenge and strife in a time when the entire universe is at stake, we should be very thankful for that opportunity. God really does favor us in such a like this. God never burdens his soul with more than it can bear. So, we can bear this. So, in the last few minutes of this, I want to borrow on this. You know, group of brainiacs right here. And I want your opinion on something. I want your guidance. So I have been working on a project for a while right now. I'm one of the few people that has actually built a marketplace on the ground. You know, I don't believe the Bitcoin project is complete until we have unstoppable free markets. So to this end, I have begun a project and it will be published soon, possibly in the next two weeks. I'm calling it the Pax Civ Kit, meaning the peaceful civilization it's a decentralized toolkit along with some progressive web apps built on top to give any community or any nation state whatever it might be the ability to spin up their own unstoppable bitcoin is the foundation of course built on top of bitcoin 
It'll basically allow anyone to start their own PACs. And I'll tell you the components of this, what stage. And the last stage, I want your opinion on what is really needed to make this a true civilization kit. Civilization governance is 99.9% .9 about money, right? So the first thing is an order book, right? And an escrow, that's what a marketplace is. Some place to list liquidity where you know there is no one point of failure. And they will use Nostra relays as a tool of that. So anyone can list their liquidity, whether it's for gift cards, commodities, money, PayPal, bank transfers, goods, services, anything on this relay. I can do it. I can put up a clean version. I can put up all the factual stuff on it. Someone can go start whatever, silk, whatever, road, whatever, 4.0 on it. Anyone can, a nation state can list all their goods and commodities. There'll be completely decentralized escrow built on hash time lock contracts and discrete lock contracts. I actually have some of the smartest people in Bitcoin working on this right now. It's an amazing team to put together. We have the Satoshi of Lightning. I'm not going to give any names right now. It's still in secret, secret work, right? Shadowy. But phase one is this marketplace, the order book and the escrow. Great. That's going to be out in the next two weeks. Phase two, in my opinion, has to be a Bitcoin Lightning wallet that is friendly, that works with any kind of mobile client. It's an extremely difficult challenge. Just Lightning is a very chatty protocol. And expecting someone's, you know, mediocre Android phone in the middle of Botswana to be, in effect, communicating with every Lightning node in the world is not really possible. There needs to be some serious infrastructure built out for that, so it becomes a lot easier. So we're working on that in phase two. In addition to that, there will be decentralized IDs. You know, I'm not one of these Bitcoin optimalist maxes that. Strikes down all forms of identification. That's silly. Identification needs to exist. It's the foundation of banking and finance, but it should be in the hands of the people. And the people should decide who they identify with or not. So instead of KYC, it's KYP. That's a challenge with some great tools to get So that's phase two wallet and centralized evidence. And with that will come a reputation system that will be built up through all these trades on the marketplace that will naturally extend out a credit market. So my question to you, phase three of this thing, what are the components we need to, to make it a true civilization? I can throw out some options, some form of credit and lending. I think that's definitely required in some form. Perhaps even a way for the people who use this civilization group to create their own stable coin backed by Bitcoin in some way, so they can issue their own currency backed up by proof of work. Like those two, is there anything else that would be more important to add? I open the floor to you, gentlemen. Anybody? I, my, well, my initial comments are it's an amazing initiative. I love that you're devoting resources to doing it. Um, I think like all things in the free market, it's going to be an ugly process of figuring out what works and what doesn't. I don't need to tell you that because you're a, you're a very experienced entrepreneur. Um, but I think if it's oriented towards empowering people more with their data, with their money, with their ability to communicate with one another and cooperate with one another, then there's going to be demand for it. Um, as far as specifics on, on number three, I'll have to chew on that some more, maybe hit you back later. 
on the spot. Nothing's nothing's coming to me, but uh, I think it's a valiant and honorable effort, and I'm uh, I'm happy you're pursuing it, and I look forward to seeing what comes of it. One thing that comes to my mind is, um, you know, global civilization and uh, removing boundaries and removing borders, essentially. How do we solve that? How do we, um, how do these civilizations welcome each other without the, the hell that we have to go through at the moment to, to be able to travel around this planet? that floats in the middle of God knows how many galaxies, but has uh, succumbed to this um, ridiculous idea that lines get drawn in the sand. And if you don't have a particular pamphlet, you can't go to this part of the place. I don't know, Ray, if you can solve that as part of your civilization uh, toolkit, (laughs) I'm I'm in. I am all in. (laughs) Um, Honestly, Ray, I would come from the perspective of we're in the, the food distribution area. And so that's kind of close to my heart. I think none of this goes without food. Um, and I think how crucial of a network that is, is that is the really the physical foundation to, to life is the, ac- the ability to have access to food. Um, so you want to talk about a, a, a pinch point is that that's where it's at. Honestly, if you want adoption, Hunger is the thing that will drive this capacity. Again, I don't want to be a you know doomer in the, that aspect, but you know when people get hungry, things things get ugly. Um, and so I think from the capacity of of how complex and how difficult difficult it is to to navigate some of those perspectives, at least open communication channels and and ways to um, distribute physical goods and services, I think will be a monster um, need for the future going forward and the ability to have those those networks and communication lines independent of you know powers that be, I guess. Um, so that's a that's a huge piece, um, at least kind of close to my heart. So if I if I would throw my you know two cents in it, it would be, something along those lines in that capacity of how complex and and um difficult it is to communicate and and first in first out and when you're dealing with um goods and services that are to have an expiration date it's how how important that is for um you know humanity to go around i think food is such a huge huge piece of you know you take for granted that you have food on the table i mean genuinely genuinely and that is a monster part of how fragile our civilization is right now how disconnected we are from nature how disconnected we are from from you know the soil and understanding that that is the thing that really drives our ability to to have the energy that we do um so i said securing that piece would be a monster um i guess piece in that in that puzzle so well gentlemen, yeah that's a good point sorry Ray, go ahead no brother if you want to call it a night i understand yeah yeah i was just gonna say it's recently dawned on me that it's probably pretty late for at least two of you and uh i've taken up more of your time than i requested so i'm gonna take this chance to thank you all for uh, a stimulating conversation hopefully it was uh interesting to people beyond ourselves as well any last words? Uh, we'll go to each of you uh, before we shut it down. Jace, why don't we start with you? 
No, man, I'm just incredibly grateful for this opportunity, man. Um, you know, when I had the chance to meet you at the Bitcoin conference, I think the energy is just palpable um, for for the people that that are involved in this network. And I, I just uh, I'm grateful, grateful for it on a daily basis. And um, I want to continue that in whatever capacity I, ha I can to, to keep um, you know, doing whatever we can individually to, to help move this ball down the down the road, because I think it collectively that's that's how we do it is is having that energy transfer between one another smiles uh, faith and I think you know hope for a grander future, I think is the, the biggest, the biggest um, capacity so very grateful and, and thanks for the opportunity man and it's great to meet you guys. You too brother. Princey, why don't you go. Yeah, thank you. Uh, like I said at the beginning, thanks for thanks for hosting this. Um, we we got as deep as I think. I don't know. Ray was holding a few things back, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to do a we'll have to do an in person one with Ray and get all the uh, I can't talk about that with you now topics. In person. <laughs> well, really and, go deep. And th but that is that is a point actually that is worth driving home. Um, the, the idea of the social layer of Bitcoin. So, so many of us were locked away, lonely, uh, the archetypical guy in your basement, you know, talking with strangers on the internet. That doesn't have to be anymore. And if you're not getting out there and, and meeting plebs in real life, getting to the conferences, even if you can't afford the conference, just get to the town and get to the side parties. You know, you don't even have to drink. Just like, just, just, you can do it very, very cheaply. But go and have conversations with Bitcoiners in real life because it's one thing to listen to these kind of conversations, but to be, uh, you know, party to them. And, you know, this was done remotely. It would have been even more incredible if we were sitting in a bar and talking about this kind of stuff or around a dinner table or something. Um, that should not go unrecognized. So, you know, meet your plebs, support your plebs. Uh, guys are doing a great job of, being able to support projects. Um, Ray, get listed up on there with your civilization project. So we can we can sling you some sats. Orange Peel app are doing a great job. You know, these 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 companies have come out of nowhere. But they weren't around like nine, 10 months ago. And this is again what we've been talking about. And this is how we win. This is how we beat this thing. So if any of you guys are going to be at the conferences, I'm looking forward to to meeting any of you. Uh, if you're listening on John's show, uh, my show is the Once Bitten podcast. It's slightly better than John. Uh, so, you know. <laughs> anyway, over to Confirmed. you, Confirmed. <laughs> Thank you all so much. It really has, you guys have really made me feel so good tonight. Being here with, uh, I never imagined, you told me 10 years ago that I had friends or colleagues, strong men that I could you know, share with, look up to, learn from help in my own way she told me this 10 years ago I wouldn't be, so that's how down i was but here we are it's the holy month of ramadan it's a very special time i'm going through some very hard things right now. i've got a lawsuit that my co-founder put against me which i can't talk about right now i've got all kinds of fires to put out i've gotten this hostile environment of the blah 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 but hey I am very happy and I'm very thankful that I can play this game at this time. If you're a human being, understand 
that you have chosen to pray the name on heart. Angels can't defy God. They're playing on easy. They're always. The middle creation is whatever you want to call them, fallen angels, ghosts, or whatever. They have ego just like us. But they're playing on normal difficulties because they're the ones attacking us. So if you are human, you've got a choice first created as a single spark of consciousness. God asked you, what mode of the game do you want to play on? If you're human, you chose hard to of all the challenges at us. The flesh is weak. That means it's much harder to be human. And if you're a human being born into this time, you're not just playing on hard mode. They're playing on legendary, right? So you should take some time to savor that and understand how much is on the line. You have a chance for true greatness. You have a chance for the angels to sing your name. And you don't have to, you know, slaughter the last boss yourself to do that. God respects the intention behind all of our deeds. I am very happy about this place. So I've come to realize now at 46 years of age what I actually am. I'm not a normal person, and that's fine. I think differently. It doesn't make me any better or any worse than anyone else. But my main thing, and as I say this as you guys know I'm a big hearted guy, huge, I take advantage of all the time. I love everyone. I don't hate anyone, but there's one thing I do hate, that is this virus that has infected the world. I hate it. All my heart and soul, I want to see it destroyed. Nothing's going to get away from that. And I hate whoever has originated this thing. The devil himself, fuck him. There is no mercy for this guy. If you love God, you will hate this piece of shit. He's the biggest hater in the world. He's dedicated his whole immortal life to trying to prove that the human experiment is wrong. Fuck him. Fuck him and fuck all his followers. He's a fucking fool to be so close to God. And to choose to spend your entire life proving that God was wrong about us humans, it's going to lose. It's going to lose great. And everything that I do now is to that effect. I know I sound like a fanatic, but honestly, I feel real good this way. This is the real me. This is who I really am. I'm not ashamed. No should any man out there be ashamed. We are men. God made us men. That means we have to do the fighting. Cannot expect our sisters to take up on this battle for us. We must do it ourselves. Take no shame like that. Take pride. That. Let it humble you. We must respect the evil that we're going up against because it is mighty. But guess what? We're still going to win anyway. We have all the advantages. Just this past hundred years, the devil has had the world in a chokehold. But finally, we have every single tool that we need to win this. Of the mobile internet, we have Bitcoin. What are the pieces we're going to build on top of it? In what order? And are we willing to set aside our egos and make peace such that the right factions can unify fast enough that we can race ahead of this thing and stop this small cast of dominant men, whoever they might be, from trying to lock down the world? into a major square scale isn't just impossible, but unthinkable, well, they're not going to get that. And even if they did get that, the result would be cataclysmic, just like it was before, which means we must win. And we are prophesized to win. So let's enjoy the ride, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Well, 
I don't think I can say anything to top that. So I'll just say, Ray, as always, I appreciate your raw authenticity. I'm grateful for all of you. I love you all. And uh, I look forward to hanging again, hanging out again in Meat Space uh, sometime soon. Thanks, guys. Love it. Thanks, gentlemen. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that interview. Thank you so much for this rip, guys. That was such a great one. And uh, I want to leave this on another reading from The Secrets of the Federal Reserve by Eustace Mullins. For many years, there has been considerable mystery about who actually owns the stock of the Federal Reserve banks. Congressman Wright Patman, leading critic of the system, tried to find out who the stockholders were. The stock in the original 12 regional Federal Reserve banks was purchased by national banks in those 12 regions. Because the Federal Reserve Bank of New York was to set the interest rates and direct open market operations, thus controlling the daily supply and price of money throughout the United States, it is the stockholders of that bank who are the real directors of the entire system. For the first time, it can be revealed who those stockholders are. This writer has original organization certificates of the 12 Federal Reserve Banks, giving Reserve Bank of New York issued 203,053 shares and as filed with the Comptroller of the Currency May 19, 1914, the large New York City banks took more than half of the outstanding shares. The Rockefeller Kuhnlobe controlled National City Bank took the largest number of shares of any bank, 30,000 shares. JP Morgan's first national bank took 15,000 shares. When these two banks merged in 1955, they owned in one block almost one-fourth of the shares in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which controlled the entire system. And thus they could name Paul Volcker or anyone else they chose to be chairman of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. Chase National Bank took 6,000 shares. The Marine Nation Bank of Buffalo, later known as Marine Midland, took 6,000 shares. This bank was owned by the Shkolkov family, which controlled Niagara Power Company and other large interests. National Bank of Commerce of New York City took 21,000 shares. The shareholders of these banks, which own the stocks of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, are the people who have controlled our political and economic destinies since 1914. They are the Rothschilds of Europe. Lazard Frères Eugene Mayer, Kuhnloeb Company, Warburg Company, Lehman Brothers, Goldman Sachs, the Rockefeller family, and JP Morgan interests. These interests have merged and consolidated in recent years so that the control is much more concentrated. National Bank of Commerce is now Morgan Guarantee Trust Company. Lehman Brothers has merged with Kuhn Loeb Company. First National Bank has merged with the National City Bank. And in the other 11 Federal Reserve districts, these same shareholders indirectly own or control shares in those banks, with the other shares owned by the leading families in those areas who own or control the principal industries in these regions. The local families set up regional councils on orders from New York of such groups as the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, and other instruments of control devised by their masters. They finance and control political developments in their area, name candidates, and are seldom successfully opposed in their plans. This is what we're up against, guys. 
This is not even... Like, this isn't fiction. This isn't a conspiracy. This is what happened. This has been deeply researched, not just by Eustace, but by Edward Griffin as well, who wrote The Creature from Jekyll Island. You know, like, stack your Bitcoin. This is the only way out. And, and try and... I mean, like, we've got people like RFK and Tulsi Gabbard that are going to try and go up, and we've had Ron Paul. They try and go up against this system. But they get nowhere. They get stonewalled because, as you will learn from reading this book, they just get shut down because it's all so disgusting and so easily controlled when you can blackmail and you know, pressure people from behind the scenes. All right, keep digging, guys. Keep uh, supporting the show sponsors. Make sure you're stacking with Swan, Relay, Coin Corner, and Hoddle Hoddle. Up your privacy with Wasabi. Take cold storage, please. Use the Bitbox 02. Get yourself one of those devices. Check out mempool.space. Join Orange Pill app. Get to a conference. Get a book from Consensus Network. This is not a drill. This is not a drill. Stack safe. Catch on the next show. Thank you, as always, for listening.